0: This week on Geek Explained, for our landmark 200th episode, we're bringing back our fan favorite segment, Pitch It. This time, we're heading into the future of Neo Gotham as I pitch my version of Batman Beyond. Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host Eric Azana, and today's episode is episode two hundred. Two hundred episodes of Geek Explained. I could not have done this without all of your support. Thank you so much for listening. Whether you started from the beginning, whether you jumped on on the way, uh, episode two hundred is here. And for episode two hundred, we're doing something pretty special. I have gotten requests every so often from listeners uh, to do specific episodes to cover specific Comics and to do different pitches. And the very first. Pitch That was ever requested was by a listener who has been with us for a very long time and it was for a film version of Batman Beyond. So today we are doing my version of a Batman Beyond film. We're going to go in classic Pitch It style talking about my influences, breaking down some ground rules, outlines and all that and we're going to dive right into that pitch. And because of that, we are going to be doing a little bit of a segment shakeup. We're going to start off with our new segment, as we always do, but then we're going to jump into comics. This week's comics countdown is going to follow the new segment, and then we are going to hit the ground running with that pitch, and then wrapping things up with a wrap up at the end. So without further ado, episode 200, let's get this baby rolling as we check in with this week's news. <laughs> Alright guys and dolls, let's talk some news. We have four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous. Gonna kick things off with two pieces of miscellaneous news, two pieces of video game news. First off, if you are a fan of One Piece, which I believe is celebrating its 25th anniversary this year, lots of anniversaries in the year of our lord 2022. You'll be excited to hear that One Piece is launching a brand new video game. One Piece Odyssey, which has been described as a classic JRPG in the One Piece style, is coming out soon. We don't really have a definite release date however we do know that it is in development they showed off some gameplay the developers actually did an interview as well talking about their thought process and building the game you know how much i love jrpgs so i'm down for this looking forward to seeing what they put together if you're a playstation user playstation plus is going under a big revamp playstation plus for those of you who aren't aware is the online service that allows you to play video games with your friends and it is being bundled up with PS Now, which has been a streaming-slash-download service to allow gamers who subscribe to it to play earlier games, Uh, PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, to stream and or download. They are now bundled up together. There's going to be a three-tier system. Bottom tier is where the normal PlayStation Plus users, including myself, are. PlayStation Plus, Plus, I guess, would be the second tier, which is, you know... More, And then the top tier would be bundling both PlayStation Plus and the PlayStation Now interfaces together so that you can play PlayStation 1, PlayStation 2, PlayStation 3, and PSP games together, stream them, download them, but what it does look like is that... PS3 games, including my beloved Batman Orkham Origins, are only for stream, which makes me irrationally angry. I want to play this game, but the lag for streaming is too annoying. That being said, this is pretty exciting for fans of... PSP games, myself included, who will now be able to play games such as Mega Man X, the new one, the sort of new one, the revamped one that lets you play as Vile, and Final Fantasy Crisis Core. I love both of those games. I cannot wait to play them. It's going to be great. Maverick Hunter X and Crisis Core are probably, well, next to uh, Birth by Sleep are my favorite PSP games so I'm excited I get to play those again if I decide to jump up to there maybe they'll do a trial or something we'll see but hopping on over to comic book news two pieces of mm, comic book news first off Marvel is relaunching Shang-Chi for reasons we now know that the Shang-Chi series which has been going strong for over a year now is going to be rebranded to Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings there's no there's no reason for this Besides corporate synergy and giving Shang Chi the rings that he gets from the film, which I rewatched recently, and yes, it it slaps, it still honks, but thankfully the creative team of jean Lun Yang and Marcus To are staying on the book, which is exciting. This just seems like an unnecessary change. And speaking of unnecessary dc round robin is back the single elimination because they don't understand what a round robin tournament is has returned for 2022 with a whole cavalcade of new books for you to get excited about and then get your heart broken by and really honestly there's only three books that actually sound interesting to me out of this whole list The Black Canary Book, which is basically Black Canary Super Spy, Wildcat, because Wildcat rules, and Green Lantern Conspiracy, which seems like a really cool UFO, what is the town, Roswell-style story featuring the Green Lantern from the 1940s, my boy Alan Scott. Those are really the only ones that seem interesting to me, and they're not going to win. Because they put a Batman, a vampire Batman, in a Suicide Squad book. So, what can you do? Whatever. Hopping on over to TV news. That was exciting, wasn't it? Uh, Three pieces of casting news for DC TV. Tim Gabriel has been cast as Obsidian for Stargirl Season 3, the brother of Jade and the son of Alan Scott. Speaking of Alan Scott. And this is exciting. There have been teases for him in Season 2. I still need to finish Season 2. It's so good, but I've just been bombarded with stuff. But I'm excited to see Obsidian. This should be really cool. Anna Lore of All-American has been cast as Spoiler for Gotham Knights, and she looks the part. I don't really watch All-American, but... I'm sure it's good. It's been going on for a while. We did the Warner Brothers tour recently, and they're putting all their chips into All-American, let me tell you. I'm excited. Stephanie Brown's great. She has popped up in Batwoman as well, so this is one of the rare times that a character is played by two different people on two concurrent shows. And Misha Collins of Supernatural fame has been cast as Two-Face for Gotham Knights, probably as the father of Duella Dent, which would make sense, but... Who knows? Who knows what's going on with this? Misha Collins, I think, is a great choice for Harvey Dent, especially a TV Harvey Dent. So, all thumbs up from me. And then finally, in film news, two pieces of big film news. First off, Nova is coming to MC is coming to the MCU. Basically, that's all we, the information we've gotten. We know that it will be helmed by writer Sabir Prezada who has been instrumental in writing Moon Knight, which debuts today as of this recording and there's no word on whether this is going to be a streaming show whether this is going to be a film but i'm excited rumor is that's going to be focused on richard rider though i think sam alexander is more interesting but that's just me and i'm sure he'll show up i'm sure we're already setting up champions and young avengers so it's only a matter of time till nova shows up there but this is cool People have been clamoring, myself included, for Nova for a really long time, so it's exciting to see him finally show up. And then we got the biggest piece, I think, this past week of film news was that we got that deleted scene. We've been talking about it. We mentioned it in the Batman uh, spoiler review that we did two weeks ago with Owen Likes Comics and Dallas of the Comics Collective. That there was a scene that was filmed and edited and finalized by Matt Reeves where Batman meets the Joker in Arkham Asylum to chat about this new villain, the Riddler. And it got released on YouTube, on Vimeo, everywhere that you want. And it's good, it's a great scene. I'm over the Joker, but I do like this interpretation of him. Barry Keown is wonderful in the role. They mangled this poor man's face to high heaven. And he actually looks like he got dropped in a vat of acid. Hair in patches falling out. His face is just foobar. Just absolutely foobar. And I think he did a great job. I don't think he's going to be popping up in any of the future films. At least I hope not. I think he's going to be the main, possibly the main narrator or main framing device for the Arkham Asylum show. I think that would make sense, especially if they start to dip into stuff like Grant Grant Morrison's Arkham Asylum, uh, Joker's Asylum, that kind of thing. It would make sense to have him in that role. And it fits perfectly you get your joker fix you keep them away from the films and everybody wins so i'm excited for it i don't know what the future holds but if it's all going to be quality like the batman we are going to be in for some good batman content and speaking of good comic book content that is going to enroll us right on into this week's comics countdown <laughs> Ooh, welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown for the week of March 30th, 2022. This is the segment of our show where I chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic bookshop, a comicsology, or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, we gotta take a look back at last week's books with the Geeksplain Pick of the Week of last week. And for me, I think to the surprise of no one, my My pick of the week of last week was Rogues number one, written by Joshua Williamson with art by uh, Massimiliano, mm, Massimiliano, Leo Max. I got it took me a couple tries but I got it um this is everything I wanted this to be a heist neo-noir story about a group of ragtag villains trying to pull off one last score right up my alley the art was fantastic the writing is of course superb I do have a big problem with it if you have read the issue you know what it is but I really enjoyed the issue overall and I can't wait to read more about this. Though I do also want to give a quick shout to Iron Man number 18, which I was really surprised about. Um, Tony Stark makes a comparison between him and Iron Man to Jekyll and Hyde. And I really liked that comparison. Uh, go read the issue if you want to know more about that. But I just, I don't know, something about that. I, I was thinking about that with every other comic I was reading through. So quick shout to that one. But the pick of the Week was, of course, Rogue's number one. But that's last week's books. This week, we're back into single digits. What is happening here? Because we've got seven books for you to check out this fine week. So Let's start things off with Dark Ages number six. This is written by Tom Taylor with art by Ivan Quello. Um, I'm pretty sure we're heading to the end of this. I'm not sure how long the Dark Age. I think it's seven or eight issues. I'm not sure, but it's been very good so far. I've been really enjoying this version of the Marvel Universe. Uh, the weird takes on characters how they've changed them up have they evolved them has been really interesting so let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here all the sacrifices made on the day the world went dark could be for nothing if apocalypse has his way some of the greatest minds of the planet have been enslaved by the tyrant and are working on a plan that could end in annihilation Will our heroes, fighting for their loved ones and lost ones, be able to stop Apocalypse and his forces, or could the world end again? Yeah, so I really enjoy any time Apocalypse is an overarching villain, or just really any time he's involved in a story. So this is going to be right up my alley. Cannot wait to pick this up. Next up, we have a brand new number one. This is Shadow War Alpha number one. This is the big... Batman book, I guess, Batman event that's crossing over Batman, Robin, and Deathstroke Incorporated, Uh, written by Joshua Williamson, art by Victor Bogdanovich, so pulling over the Robin team. And I'm interested in this, right? I'm not sure how I feel about it, because we just got through a lot of status quo shakeups for Batman, having events like Fear State. We had just recently Shadows of the Bat, you know, Arkham Tower, that kind of thing. So I am curious to see how this is going to set itself apart, but let's check it out and see what it's got for us. Shadow War Part 1. When Deathstroke assassinates Raish al Ghul, Talia al Ghul demands revenge and sends her League of Shadows to kill Deathstroke and Deathstroke Incorporated. Batman and Robin must team up to track down Deathstroke and bring him to justice. But do they? Expect over-the-top fights, action, mystery, and betrayal as this crossover event creates a major impact on the DCU. So it's promising major impacts. This is coming in the lead up to Justice League 75, Death of the Justice League, where Batman's supposed to die again. So we'll see how much of an impact this ultimately has. Next up, we have another brand new number one, Immortal X-Men number one. This is written by Kieran Gillen with art by Lucas Wernick and is the next chapter in the House of X, Powers of Ten saga of X-Men We are now out of the Hickman era as he wrapped up his tenure with Inferno. And now we're going to see what happens next with the Quiet Council. So this is going to be kind of the flagship of the Destiny of X arc of this new X-Men status quo. Let's check it out and see what they've got for us. In the Quiet Council, no one can hear you scream. The Quiet Council rules the Kakoan Age for better or worse. Now, shaken by Inferno and ten lives of Wolverine slash ten deaths of Wolverine, they strive to hold together, no matter how much they want to tear each other apart. Writer Kieran Gillen returns to the world of X with artist Lucas Wernick to bring us all into the room where it happens. It, being the most powerful people on Earth, deciding the fate of the whole planet. Prepare for sinister secrets to be revealed and learn that some secrets are more sinister than others. That's a lot of sinister name drops there, so we'll see how much he factors into this. I'm very interested because they're promising a lot of, like, intrigue, political backstabbing, we're getting Game of Thrones meets Succession, sounds like, so I'm going to be really curious to see how they pull this off. Next up we have Radiant Black, number 13, this is written by Kyle Higgins with art by Marcelo Costa, and I've been enjoying Radiant Black, I'm ready for it to move into its next phase, I'm ready to know what we're going for when it comes to the direction of the book so hopefully this issue is going to give us what we need, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. As the saying goes, when it rains supervillains, it pours supervillains. But even as Excel hunts Radiant Black for the ultimate recharge, Marshall's got bigger things to worry about, like repairing his reputation. And the old friend who just showed up in town. And who's got his dog? Radiant Black year two begins here. So yeah, this sounds like it is the right time to jump onto the book if you haven't been reading it. Try it out, see if you like it, and we will go from there. Next up, we have a book that I am very hotly anticipating. In fact, the next three books I've been waiting for for a while, so you could almost make this a trio of Big Book of the Week. First up, we have Iron Fist, number two, written by Alyssa Wong with art by Michael YG and Sean Chen. And the first issue of Iron Fist was great. I really like this new Iron Fist. I'm interested to see what direction he goes in. And having him team up with a Lao less Danny Rand I think is really cool. I am not sure what the direction of the book is going to be. And I read somewhere that is apparently a miniseries and I don't like that idea. I want this to be a full-on ongoing. But we will just have to see. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Here. The hunt is on. As the new Iron Fist adjusts to his role, he struggles to handle the warring sources of his power. Can he find balance before they consume him? The answers he seeks may lie at the heart of Kun Lun, with the past Iron Fists. Meanwhile, Danny Rand's hunt for the mysterious Iron Fist heats up. In order to catch him, Danny will have to cash in a favor from an old friend. Are we getting Power Man and Iron Fist in this book? I sure freaking hope so. We'll just have to see. Next up, and I think this is wild timing. This wasn't planned. I promise you this wasn't planned. But the next book we have, again, tied for Big Book of the Week, is Batman Beyond the White Knight, number one. Written and illustrated by Sean Gordon Murphy with uh, additional art by Dave Stewart. I have been... Hotly anticipating this. Ever since uh, Sean Gordon Murphy decided to let the world know, hey, we're doing Batman Beyond in the White Knight universe. I have been incredibly curious to see his take on the book. And for those of you who love Batman Beyond, you get two takes of Batman Beyond in one week on the same Wednesday. Like, what do you what can what more can you ask for? So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Book one. A lot can change in ten years, especially in Gotham. Batman, a.k.a. Bruce Wayne, may be behind bars, but the real criminals are still out there. Gotham Motors CEO Derek Powers has seized control of the Wayne family's assets and is using them to transform the GTO and the city they've sworn to protect. Crime is down, but at what cost? A new Batman has emerged in the city, and only Bruce is fully aware of the dangers to come. It's time to destroy the mantle for good, but he'll need one of his forgotten son's help to do so. Enter Jason Todd, the first Robin. Yeah, so if you haven't been reading the Batman White Knight books, all of that might sound very, very strange. Um, And I would recommend that you go and check out Batman... White Knight, the first one is an instant classic. The second one, Curse of the White Knight, is very, very good. It's not, for me personally, as good as the first one, but it's still a wonderful take on the Nightfall as Bat storyline. And now we're going to end the trilogy with Batman Beyond the White Knight. So this is going to be one to pick up for sure. And then finally, tying for our three big book of the week it had to be this you know it had to be this amazing spider-man number 93 oh man this is gonna be this is gonna be one for the ages written by zeb wells art by patrick leeson this is the end of beyond this is the big finale this is pitting ben reilly my boy versus peter parker And only one of them is going to come out as Spider-Man. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Beyond finale. The big finale of beyond. Spider-Man versus Spider-Man. You may surprise yourself with who you're rooting for. Don't miss the conclusion to one of the most surprising spider stories of the past decade. Of course, they're trying very hard to not do any spoilers in this, so I am super excited for this. I loved the Beyond era. Everything about it from start to finish has been wonderful. I'm sad that it's ending and we're going to go back to classic Peter Parker, but I do like the team. I'm excited for where Ben Reilly goes next, and I have faith in the brain trusts that created this Beyond era that they are going to finish this out with a satisfying conclusion. But that is ends this week's comics countdown to recap we have dark ages number six shadow war alpha number one immortal x-men number one radiant black number 13 iron fist number two batman beyond the white knight number one and the amazing spider-man number 93 lots of great comics this week so i'm very excited to hit up the comic book shop but that is going to bring us to the main event the main course the entree if you will As I pitch Batman Beyond. I'm nervous about this one. You know when you think about something for long enough, you start to nitpick it? That's kind of how I've been for a while. I've been working on this, or I mean really, this has been kind of in my mind for years. And I'm almost more nervous about this than I was for the Superman Pitch It, which was a hundred episodes ago. (laughs) Uh, this, that's, that's crazy to me. I still can't believe we're at 200 episodes. It's wild. And I am incredibly grateful for all of you for being on this ride with me. This is going to be, you're either going to love this or going to hate this. (laughs) Because I made a lot of choices that I personally really love. It's not going to be just a one for one retelling of the Rebirth two-parter, but there is a lot of DNA there. But this is... The return of Pitch It! With my weird ramble preamble out of the way, this is where I take something that I love, whether it be comic books, films, whatever, and I pitch my version of what I think a film or short or TV series or what have you could be I've done Spider-Man I've done Star Wars I've done Superman the last one we did was I believe episode 175 Boomer's Big Score which I love and adore with all my heart and This is one that I've had in my mind for a very, very long time. This is one that was requested and was the very first thing ever really requested for the podcast, which was a pitch for a Batman Beyond film. So I have had this ruminating in my mind for years at this point, and now putting this all together, I hope you like it. (laughs) So... This is, of course, Batman Beyond, except I had to be weird and different. So it's Batman colon beyond like this is the next chapter in Batman, which I think is appropriate. I thought it was cool. So that's that's me. But before we get into the actual pitch, I want to lay down some ground rules, talk about my inspirations and stuff like that. So I, of course, whenever I'm coming up with a story, take inspiration from everything, whether it's comics, film, TV, video games, and a lot of what goes into this comes from stuff from all four of those genres. So for video games, I took Final Fantasy VII Remake. I like the world. I like the, not necessarily steampunk. I don't know. I guess it could technically be considered steampunk, but the way that there is a big class divide when it comes to above the plate and below the plate, and I just, I really like Midgar as a city, and I mean, I love Final Fantasy VII just in general, but Final Fantasy VII Remake did a great job in establishing the world, and establishing, even though it's, you know, just like a quarter of the actual original game they filled it with so much life and made you care about it so much and made me care about everyone in Midgar far more than the original game did so I took a lot of inspiration from that Uh, when it comes to TV of course I took inspiration for the Batman Beyond cartoon specifically episodes like Rebirth dead man's hand once burned and lost soul i also took inspiration from just the general tone of the just league unlimited for of course the tim verse i took inspiration from daredevil i took inspiration from arcane and to the surprise of i think probably no one batman beyond return of the joker which I guess I should put in the film category, but it was, it was a made-for-TV movie, is how I watched it, at least. So either way, the original Batman Beyond has a lot of influence on this, obviously, because that's where everything comes from when it comes to this story. And for the others, you know, Daredevil, I like the crime aspect. I like the color palette. I think there's a lot of cinematography and color, correcting color, just palette. The set, when it comes to the... The outfits when it comes to costuming that I really think could be utilized in this. I love the neo noir lighting that the at least the first two seasons of Daredevil have. And for Arcane, again, having a city have this big divide. There is, I'm gonna get into it when I get into themes, but there is a heavy amount of classism and us versus them, depending on your social status. in Arcane, And I wanted to carry that into this as well. And if this did happen to be an animated film, which I would prefer to go in the realm of, I think the art style of Arcane would work wonders with Batman Beyond, a neo-futuristic Gotham, all of the outlandish characters and that suit, that Batman Beyond suit, I think would look incredible in an arcane style. When it comes to comics, uh, there's really three comics that I dug a lot from. Dark Knight Returns, it's it's a classic. It's not my favorite Batman story, but it's a classic for a reason. Batman White Knight, I talked about it just in the last segment with Beyond the White Knight, but again, I love the flawed Batman. I love the idea that Bruce kind of gets lost in the sauce and starts caring or stops caring about the people who he originally set out to protect and zero year because it's a wonderful origin story and the willingness to go a little bit outlandish and show the progression from a hot-headed child looking for vengeance to batman is something that will always resonate with me and finally films there are specific films that i dug a lot from. Captain America the First Avenger, which might be confusing, but won't be as we get along into the pitch. Batman Begins, of course it was the iconic Batman origin story on film for me, but of course that has been, I don't know, necessarily supplanted. I personally put it in my rankings just above Batman Begins, the Batman. Having crime, having, having crime, just... Having the whole city be run by crime, having the city be, as Gordon says in that film, about a keg, and having just this Batman trying to figure out what he wants to represent, I think is really cool. I also took some from Creed because it's a top five film of all time, and I love it. Another top five, Mask of Zorro. I took a lot from Mask of Zorro because I did, and that's just how it is. (laughs) I love The Mask of Zorro. It is the horniest movie I've ever watched. And I love how, essentially, as pointed out by many people, The Mask of Zorro is the best Batman Beyond movie. Hopefully until this one. So with that, let's set down some ground rules. This is a Batman Beyond origin story. So this isn't going to be trying to encompass the entire Batman Beyond experience. I envision this as a part one to a three-part trilogy. If there is interest in doing The other two parts, I have ideas for both of them that I think would be really cool, but wait until the end of the pitch to let me know if you want to see that or not. Terry and Bruce should be equally important in this because with any good Batman Beyond story, especially a Batman Beyond origin story, it's about handing the baton. It's about passing the torch from Bruce to Terry. And a big thing for me, Terry is Asian. He's half Asian in this, much like myself. I have always loved the idea of terry mcginnis being asian there's been a big push to make terry mcginnis asian i think in beyond the white knight which is coming out this week sean gordon murphy did confirm that terry is half asian which i really dig and that is going to be a through line for both of those here There is three acts to this, just like with my previous pitches. I like the three-act structure. There's going to be a prologue, Act 1, Act 2A, 2B, and then Act 3. No other superheroes will be involved in this, yet. This world I want to set up as a distinctly Batman-focused world, but just like in Matt Reeves' Batman universe... I think there's room. I think there's room to add in other stuff, but right now we are going to focus on just Gotham and just the Gotham-centric heroes and the world. So I envision Neo-Gotham as very Blade Runner-esque. I don't think I'm breaking any new ground here. By saying that, I think a lot of people think of, when they think of Neo-Gotham, when they think of Batman Beyond, they get that kind of Blade Runner aesthetic, which I really enjoy. It's futuristic, yet grounded. Like, it's a world that you can actually see people living in. Of course, a lot of it is inspired by the Neo-Gotham from the DCAU, of course. But I think something that isn't really present in there, but is present in, as I said, some of the influences, there's a heavy class divide in this city. There is a big difference between those at the top and those at the bottom. Bruce Wayne's social class is nowhere near the same as Terry McGinnis's social class. And that becomes very important, especially when you think about the themes. And the themes that I have for this story that kind of led the way with me writing it, themes of identity and belonging and figuring out who you want to be and what your place is in the world, classism is as i said before very important in this there is a big social divide and it is felt through the characters and through the narrative star-crossed love because as i've said before any good story at its heart is a love story and finally guilt and responsibility That is something that I think a lot of people normally associate with Spider-Man, but the fact that Batman Beyond was inspired in a lot of ways by Spider-Man is something that I took very literally (laughs) in this story and in my interpretation of the Batman Beyond universe. And so my goals for this pitch, I want to successfully pass the baton from Bruce to Terry, I want to establish Terry McGinnis as Batman. I want to build upon the original story, that original two-part rebirth story. I want to build upon it, I want to expand it, and I want to make it something that can reasonably be expected to be on film, whether it's an animation or live action. I want to open the door for more stories and more adventures to be told. And ultimately, just like with all my other pitches, I want to tell a good story. I just want to tell a good story. That is always the goal with this I mean, with this podcast in general, but with these pitches, I want to tell a story that people would be interested in seeing. With all of that out of the way, without further ado, let's get into this pitch. And Aaron Aronsha, longtime listener, this one's for you, buddy. So let's get into my pitch for Batman Beyond. We start with a prologue entitled The Last Dark night. We begin our story in Gotham, in the near future. Not super far removed, we're not to that strictly neo-Gotham era yet, but it is a substantial amount of time since Bruce Wayne put on the cowl. And we open in maybe not the place that everyone would expect this to, a doctor's office. This is a very sterile, normal doctor's examination room, and we find an aged Bruce Wayne. This Bruce Wayne is probably in his early to mid-50s, who has been at this for a while, and he is being checked up on by Leslie Tompkins. The two of them, longtime friends, Leslie Tompkins has been a caretaker for Bruce since he was very small, since he was a very small boy, and Leslie is giving him, you know, his routine checkup Bruce has been Batman for about 30 years I kind of always envision Bruce starting around like 21 to 23 as Batman and then carrying on from there because again I've said it before I love the idea that maybe like a 25 year old Bruce Wayne is learning to deal with You know, a 12-year-old Dick Grayson, and it's like, you wouldn't leave your dog to babysit your cat, but that's what happens. So I really like that idea. But anyway, Bruce Wayne has been at this for 30 years, and his health has been deteriorating. He's an old man. He has been putting his body on the line for Gotham for three decades, and all he has to show for it is lots of scarring, bullet holes, and a fairly serious heart condition. Leslie tells him that he has been running his body into the ground and it's starting to catch up on him. no cartilage in his knees, he, his joints are worn down to the bone, and he is starting to get heavier. he's starting to feel the years and as Leslie is giving him his checkup telling him about his heart condition, bruce's Attention is divided. He's listening to Leslie, but his eyes drift to a nearby screen where a news report is playing. The actress and well known socialite Buddy Vreeland has been kidnapped and has been held up for ransom by the Royal Flush Gang. For Bruce, this has been an issue, and for Bruce, this is. Very important because he has been pursuing the Royal Flush Gang for months. They came fairly recently onto the scene, maybe six months to a year ago, and they aren't like the psychopaths and monsters that he normally fights. These are people who know what they're doing they're a well-oiled machine and Batman, for all of his detective skill, for all of his crime fighting ability and his years of experience, hasn't been able to stop them and hasn't been able to catch them. And so his attention immediately shifts from his not so great health bill to, I need to get back out there. I cannot let them escape again. Leslie mentions that hey, you know, there are other problems besides the Royal Flush Gang abducting a wealthy millionaire and a wealthy billionaire's child. You know, she mentions that lately there have been reports of disappearing teens. You know, she mentions one who was the third teen this month. And with her clinic being in, you know, a not-so-great side of Gotham, she keeps her ear to the ground. Leslie Tompkins has had the same clinic in the same corner of Gotham in the Narrows for a very long time. And so she is well-acquainted with the neighborhood around her. And she mentions that all the teens that have been missing recently over the past year have been from Lower Gotham and the Narrows, and she mentions maybe someone could try looking after the less fortunate and not just the wealthy. Bruce immediately brushes this off. Batman has been at this for 30 years, but even he can't be everywhere. Batman is just one man, and as long as he's doing it, he's going to try to help who he can, but he can't help everyone. And Leslie knows where he's going with this. They've had this conversation for 30 years at this point. And as Bruce gets ready to leave, puts his coat back on, she puts a hand on his shoulder and says, look, I know you've been at this for a while. I know you've been fighting for this city, but don't forget where Batman began, because that's just as important as where Batman's going. Bruce steps out of the clinic, and the clinic is, of course, in the Narrows, the much-run-down, very almost-falling-apart side of Gotham that all the seediest crimes tend to happen in. And as he seems to take in Leslie's words, a light shines down. He looks up into the sky and, reflected off of the clouds, we see the bat signal. We hold on it for a moment and then it pans down to a high-rise in Gotham City. The nice part of Gotham City. Upper Gotham has been on the rise, and it houses all of the wealthy, all of the upper social class. But this specific high-rise in Upper Gotham is home to one Bunny Vreeland, who has been kidnapped and is being held for ransom very publicly by the Royal Flush Gang. Now, this Royal Flush Gang is very similar in design to the justice league doom designs if you haven't seen that film if you haven't lately go see uh, justice league doom good film really enjoy it i always love when the royal Flush gang shows up and they are one of my favorite batman rogues and as they are getting ready to plot their next step they get the notification ransom's been secured five million dollars for the life of buddy vreeland Now, King plans to execute Bunny and escape, saying that, okay, we got our money, we don't need the hostage anymore. And as the rest of the Royal Flesh Gang, that being Queen, Ace, Jack, and Ten, begin to get their things ready and begin to toss Bunny out of the high-rise window, Batman arrives. And we get the classic Batman through the skylight, crashing through, glass shattering everywhere, incredible batman theme playing as batman descends to the ground but batman isn't wearing his classic batman garb no 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 this bat suit is different clad in all black no cape and shining a yellow bat symbol that's right yellow bat symbol on this batman beyond suit exactly what you think a batman beyond suit would look like just with the yellow symbol As soon as he enters and the Royal Flush Gang is able to compose themselves from this entrance, a fight ensues, and we get a classic Batman versus Royal Flush Gang beat-em-up. However, this one is a little different. Batman is showing his age a little bit. However, he is experienced as a fighter, and for some reason, this Royal Flush Gang who has been very highly capable before is a little unorganized. Jack and Ace specifically, two young men who Batman has tangled with before over the last year, seem a little shaken seeing Batman. They're panicked. It's like they're seeing him for the first time. They are making stupid choices. Batman is outsmarting them and overpowering them. However, King is different. King has a personal vendetta. With Batman. The two of them have been playing Cat and Mouse for the last year, and so King, with his sword drawn, battles with Bruce and is able to get in some good shots before Bruce uses various gadgets to knock everyone aside and give him a moment to breathe. Batman moves back to Find Bunny, who has you know slunk away after being tied up. However, he finds that Bunny is being held at gunpoint by Ace. Ace, seemingly shaken, a crackly teenage voice coming out from under the mask, tells him, "Don't, don't, don't move! Don't move! I'll, 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 I'll kill her! I will!" Batman, seeing this, has no patience. For you see, Batman in his old age has begun to change the way he does things his age has made him not as fast not as quick when it comes to the physical part of crime fighting the actual fighting in crime fighting and so he has made up for this and almost overcompensated for his lack of speed by sheer raw power not pulling punches being a little bit more vicious he is a monster when it comes to how badly he has injured criminals recently because that's what he needs to do to keep up with them. And so doing this and seeing Ace holding Bunny at gunpoint, Batman moves like the night and viciously disarms Ace, beating him to a pulp before he realizes what he's doing after a sound comes from Bunny. He turns and unties her, tells her to escape, and all of a sudden, this night takes a turn as he begins to feel intense chest pains. He drops to his knees as the pain radiates throughout his body, causing his head to start to spin. The room is starting to wobble in his vision, and his vision is slowly becoming blurred. And at this moment, King takes the opportunity to sneak attack this prone Batman, beating him and using his sword to slice up the Cape Crusader before ultimately putting him down. King, leaning over Batman as he helps Ace to his feet, promises to come back and end him. Not tonight, Dark Knight, but soon. I will end your life. He gets back to his feet, tells Ace to get his own shots in and a hesitant ace looks at king then back to the batman gets a couple half-hearted kicks into batman which king takes note of and gives him a little bit of a shoving for and then they decide to leave batman is down and so they begin to head out the two of them making their way as the rest of the royal flesh gang have Descended, repelled down from the window, and as the two of them are making their escape, Batman, still rocked by the heart attack he's suffering from, sees a gun. We then see the gun slowly rising, shakily into frame, as the shaky vision of King and Ace are making their way towards the window. Bruce knows. That if he doesn't catch King, if he doesn't apprehend the Royal Flesh Gang, he might not get another chance. And as the two make their way towards the window, King notices the raised gun, just as a gunshot rings out. Ace falls to the floor. King, facing Batman, a shocked look on his face. He picks up Ace's prone body with Ace crying and sobbing from the pain. And the two of them, King and Batman, from across the room, meet eyes. And for a moment, King smirks. King heads out, is able to escape with Ace. However, as he rappels down, he sees that Jack and Queen have been apprehended by the police. And so King has to make a detour. We get a quick shot of him with Ace's prone body as he makes his getaway into the night. We pan up to the top of this high-rise. Batman stumbles out, pulling his mask off, blood coming down his face from his mouth, and he holds up his hand, shaking with the gun. He fired this weapon, the weapon that took his parents away from him. He broke a rule. The rule he drops the gun and we see the shock and the utter disappointment in himself as the camera once again pans up into the night sky and the bat signal shuts off back at the bat cave we see bruce making his way through the cave part of it has been submerged in water there has been some time passed we see different trophies, things broken down. This is not a Batcave that has been well taken care of because Batman barely has time to take care of himself. And as we see him put the Bat suit into its display case, there's a longing look like this might be the last time he ever sees it. He closes the display case and walks his way back through the Batcave, a Batcave that feels emptier than it is. There's no one here. No one here to greet him, no one here to compare notes, no one to admonish him for what he just did. And we see as we pan over that alongside the bat suit in this display case are the suits of Nightwing, Batgirl, Robin, and the classic bat suit. Bruce makes his way up the stairs towards the secret entrance into Wayne Manor, and he takes one last look at the bat cave before saying, Never again. And he shuts the lights off. We then get the opening credits for the film. And it brings us to Act 1, One Long Night. 20 years later, we get a video that basically gives us some exposition, starts us off to let us know what the status quo is. Neo-Gotham is the brand new city that we enter ourselves into. And Neo-Gotham is split up into three sections, three districts, three boroughs, in essence. Old Gotham, falling apart, pretty much the run-down, nearly abandoned, and industrial section of Gotham. Lower Gotham, the still pretty bad section of Gotham that at least has people living in it. And Upper Gotham, the section that has continued to be on the rise when it comes to development, when it comes to philanthropic endeavors. Anytime that someone says, we are bringing Gotham into the light, they mean Upper Gotham. They don't mean Gotham as a whole. Following this, basically this news report that is giving us the recap of what's happened over the last 20 years. We find out that once Batman disappeared 20 years ago, the city fell to chaos, and Old Gotham was nearly destroyed. Derek Powers, businessman, philanthropist, corporate czar, as he has been called from time to time, acquired Wayne Industries one decade ago. Ten years ago, Wayne Industries merged with powers technologies to create wayne powers building a brighter future for gotham and again we know that means upper gotham so for the last 10 years Derek powers has more or less turned much of the chaos that ran through the entirety of gotham around and more or less centered it into lower gotham and old gotham And we find that this video isn't just talking to us, the audience, but as we pan out, we see that this video is in a high school classroom. World studies, social studies class, and this presentation, more or less, this news report, is to let the students know how lucky they are that someone like Derek Powers is looking out for Gotham. Just then, the PA system goes off. There's an alarm. PA System announces that there's a lockdown and that there's a fight going on in the courtyard and that all security on the campus needs to make its way there. We do one single shot, panning out from the video into the classroom. The PA starts, the alarm goes off, the camera follows out the classroom door and down the hall as we see security guards running down the hall and out, and the camera follows them out into the courtyard as we meet a young Terry McGinnis, 17-year-old Terry McGinnis, a senior at Gotham High, is in the middle of a scrap, which is where he likes to be. Terry McGinnis, scrappy, he has a penchant for smack talk, and is also physically gifted. There's never been a fight that he hasn't either won or been able to walk away from. And in this particular fight, he's fighting against three other kids. And I want this to be visually very similar to the fight in Batman Begins between Bruce and the other inmates near the beginning when he's in that that prison where he is just flailing. He's got natural skill, but he's got no finesse. He has a background of some very limited parkour, but he's mostly a street fighter. He's mostly a brawler, and he shows that by winning this fight and kicking these kids' asses until security breaks up the fight, pushes all of them down, and we end on Terry just struggling against the security guard. We cut to later. Terry McGinnis is sitting outside of the school when a car rolls up, and out steps his father, Warren Riesco. Now, I know that for some people... If they do think about Terry being half-Asian, they typically make the mother Asian. I, for myself and for this story, I want the father to be Asian. I want the father to be specifically Filipino, personally. Warren Riasco steps out of the car, and he is picking up his son, who has been nothing but trouble. And Terry gets in the car, and as they are driving, they have a conversation. And we get to find out a little bit more about Terry, about Warren, and about their relationship. Terry's parents divorced while Terry was still young. And while the custody battle wasn't anything to speak of, Warren did end up taking custody of Terry. While his wife Mary took custody of their very young child, baby Matt. Though Warren did win custody of Terry with him and his brother essentially being split up... Terry was not happy about this. The two never had a very close relationship and were very adversarial, even from Terry's young age. And in protest, Terry took his mother's maiden name, McGinnis. So Terry and Warren's relationship is very clearly strained. The two of them are just not on the same page. And that has resulted in Warren not really knowing what to do with Terry. Terry's been fighting a lot, especially once he entered high school, and Terry seems to be angry all the time. He doesn't know what he's doing, he doesn't know why Terry is lashing out this way, and though the two of them have been living together for some time, they could not feel further apart. Now, Warren mentions that I had to leave work to come get you because you keep fighting kids. Terry is not having any of it, and the two of them are just arguing. So Warren mentions to him, I have to make one last stop at the office to lock my office down, and then we're going to go home and we're going to have a long conversation about what we need to do to get you to turn all this around. So Warren parks the car outside of Wayne Powers, where Warren has been working for some time. And Warren heads into his office where he finds his co-worker, Harry Tully, hiding behind his desk. Warren is really confused by this. He's known Harry Tully for a few years now since he started working together, and Harry doesn't really come by the office much. They started in the same office, but Harry got moved to another project, and the two of them haven't really spoken too much since. So it's a little strange that Harry is here. And that's not the only strange thing, because Harry is showing some pretty serious signs of paranoia, and he's, you know, shaking and jittery, and he's got some weird black patches that are developing on his skin. And Warren could swear, it might just be a trick of the light, but the patches are growing very slowly, very incrementally, but he could swear that they're moving. Harry basically tells him that he can't tell Warren what's happening, but that he needs to promise him that what he gives him, he won't show or tell anyone else about. And Warren, having known Harry for some time, says, yeah, okay, what's going on? Harry hands Warren a thumb drive and tells him to trust no one. And at that exact moment, the doors open, and we get introduced to Derek Powers and his son, Paxton Powers. The two Powers men walk in alongside a little posse of security. Harry is startled by seeing them and absolutely terrified, which strangely doesn't check out. Harry has always been a loyal Company man, and so why would he be panicked seeing his boss? Warren makes note of this. Harry does try to escape around the security, but they tase him, capture him, and they take him away. This scene has shaken Warren. He's not sure what to make of this, and Derek doesn't really give him a whole lot of confidence following this. Questioning Warren, telling him, you know, Harry had a little bit of a nervous breakdown while working, and He's been a little shaky and jittery for a while now, so he wants to make sure that he didn't say anything strange to Warren, and Warren, making note of the situation and reading the room, says, no, I found him, the door opened, and you were there. We didn't get a chance to talk. Paxton scoffs at this. Paxton is kind of a weaselly, he doesn't really, like, respect anyone. He's that rich kid who is now working for his dad and... Very much fills that type. Warren, again, you know, denies having had a conversation with Harry. He's like, you know, we can talk to Harry later. And Derek says, yeah, you know, that won't be necessary. But you can always, you know, we'll we'll have a chat with Harry. And the, then if he really wants to talk to you, you can talk to you on Monday. So Warren starts to make his way out of the office, locking everything up. And Derek says, one more thing, Warren. We seem to have a file missing from Harry's terminal. Do you know where it is? Warren shakes his head, no, I have no idea where it could be. Derek says, no, of course not. Outside, Warren is making his way to the car when Paxton exits the building following him. Terry's sitting in the car and he sees this. He sees this weird man following his father. And Paxton, who is your quintessential snob, he's a brat, he's a bully, shoves Warren, threatening him, telling him, if you know anything, you need to tell me right now or I could have your job. And Warren, again, says no. And you need to not put your hands on me again or else we're going to have a problem. And Paxton backs down immediately. He's very big when he's got security around him. But when he's on his own, not so much. So Paxton backs off. Warren gets in the car in a huff. Derek arrives outside the building and exchanges looks with Paxton as Warren drives off with Terry in the car and says, maybe it's time to make a call. Warren and Terry drive home through the neighborhood and we find out that the two of them live in the Narrows. As they make their way through, we start to see that though Upper Gotham has had all these technological advancements, we've got, you know, levitating cars, we've got all this great technology, Lower Gotham looks more run down than ever. And it's very clear that a brighter future, in quotations, doesn't include those less fortunate. Terry begins to argue with Warren, again, because he doesn't understand why Warren would work for someone like Powers, who clearly does not respect him, does not care about him, and would not make any kind of fuss if he died. Warren is dismissive of this. He's like, you know, we have to make sacrifices for the greater good. We have to sometimes do things that we're not comfortable with to make sure that there's a brighter tomorrow. And two of them continue to argue. They're just not on the same page. And Warren says, look, we need to focus on you. You can't control your temper. And you're going to need to if you want to get anywhere in life. And Terry, as they pull up to their rundown apartment building, Terry looks back at him and says, yeah, I'll be a big success, just like you, which hits Warren really hard. Terry then launches the door of the car open and goes running off down the street. Warren thinks to go after him, but this isn't the first time that Terry's gone off, and every time before, he's always come back. So Warren sighs, gets out of the car, heads into their rundown apartment. And as he does, he enters into this very shoddy-looking space. He sits down at his computer and thinks for a moment. His eyes drift over to this photo showing Warren, Mary, and a very young Terry McGinnis. He picks up the photo for a moment, sets it down, and after another moment, pulls out the thumb drive. Plugs it into his computer, uses his credentials to open up the file that he found, and he is horrified by what he sees. We cut to Terry's Night Out in downtown Lower Gotham. Terry's walking through these seedy streets. I want to paint a picture for you. It looks very much like the scene of Bruce walking through uh, Lower Gotham in year one where he hasn't become Batman yet, it's just very, it's filled with neon lights, seedy, just all types of wrong characters, uh, cars going through, that whole deal. And Terry eventually arrives at a nightclub, however, doesn't have any money to get in, because he's a kid, he's a 17-year-old, and though the nightclub scene has become a little bit more lax as the years have gone on with how much or how old you need to be. Basically, if you've got money, you can get anywhere, again. He begins arguing with the bouncer, who is this large man who will not let this 17-year-old kid with no money into this club. And as Terry raises a fist to fight him, he feels two hands grasp onto his wrist and spin him around, a voice saying, Whoa, whoa, we don't need to do that here. And as he is steered around by the strange she pulls him away from the door and gets him to calm down. A girl about his age basically saying like, look, I know that guy was being a dick but you don't need to get in trouble just because you don't have any money. And the two of them talk for a little bit and she introduces herself. I'm Melanie. And so Terry and Melanie begin to talk and they immediately hit it off. The two of them exchanging stories. Melanie is unlike Terry from Uptown, but goes downtown because it feels like home. She lives in Upper Gotham, but she just can't pull herself away from Lower Gotham. She spent time here, she knows the streets like the back of her hand, and so she loves coming down here at night. Terry, in the opposite way, feels trapped in downtown. He wants very desperately to feel respected, to feel like he's a part of something, and so he dreams of being someone in Upper Gotham, someone like Melanie. And so the two of them feel like kindred spirits, not really being comfortable where they are and longing to be somewhere else. And Terry... In this moment, he feels lost. He's searching for his identity. It's something that he's struggled with, and I know many people, including myself, who are of mixed heritage, struggle with as well. Trying to figure out where your place is. You're too this for that. You're too that for this. And he has nowhere to go. And the two of them seem to find solace in each other. And because of that, they share a kiss. However, right at that moment, we hear hunk hunk as a gang of jokers arrive on the scene. Motorcycle hooligans obsessed with an old school villain from Gotham's past. They've been running roughshod all over Lower Gotham. Basically facilitating everything. The drug trade, crime, everything bad that happens in Lower Gotham. The jokers have a hand in it. And so they are here to, as they always do, cause trouble, get in fights, and rough up some people. And to that, they begin to mess with Melanie. The leader of this gang, who looks almost like the spitting image of the clown prince of crime who they modeled themselves after, seems to take an interest in Melanie and is harassing her until Terry because he is who he is, has to intervene. And he lands a solid sock on the jaw to this Joker, knocking him off of his motorcycle. And from there, the Jokers, en masse, turn their attention to Terry. And Terry begins to brawl with them, using some of his parkour and acrobatic skills to stay just half a step ahead of the Jokers, who are not used to getting this kind of resistance from normies terry at a certain point realizes oh man more are coming as more motorcycles are on the horizon down the street and melanie points at the downed motorcycle from the leader and says you gotta go terry looks at her and says okay uh, uh meet me tomorrow you meet tomorrow night under the clock tower and the two of them smile at each other terry gets on the motorcycle and he speeds off So then we get a quick motorbike chase scene through Gotham, going all the way through Lower Gotham into Old Gotham, through the, in some parts, flooded areas of the most run-down part of the city, all the way through to the outskirts of the city. And Terry is momentarily able to lose this pursuing gang by slipping into a cemetery, riding his motorcycle into the cemetery that doesn't seem like... It should be here. And as he is making his way to the other side of the cemetery to try and make his way out, he lights up the headlights and finds that an old man is in his way. Terry turns hard to avoid him, takes a spill, the motorcycle crashing. And as Terry is trying to recover, Terry pulls himself back to his feet, takes the helmet off. The Jokers have caught up to him. They get off their bikes, they surround him, ready to give this kid the beating of a lifetime, when all of a sudden, a voice rings out. Leave him alone. The old man, who Terry had avoided hitting before, steps into the light of the headlights on Terry's side. The Jokers are really amused by this, because of course they are, and they begin to chuckle, brandishing weapons, one of them saying, you know, hey man, you don't get it. We're the Jokers. The old man smirks and says, sure you are. And then we get a nice little fight scene. Terry and this old man fighting off these Jokers who are, besides their face paint, besides their strength and numbers, besides their gaudy outfits, they're just hoodlums who don't know how to really fight. And so Terry, who has been fighting most of his life, is able to fight them off. And this old man, he knows a thing or two because he is giving these jokers the business. Finally, they're able to run off the jokers who realize they're fighting a losing battle. And so they begin to make their way off. They get onto their bikes and they begin to speed away. And Terry, in the heat of the moment, shouts after them, Hey, you ever want to do this again? I live in the dregs. You know where to find me. The dregs being the apartment building that Terry and his father, Warren, live in. In the aftermath of the fight, Terry, who is still on the high of winning, turns to find that the old man has collapsed. Terry helps him back to his feet and says, you know, hey, are are you okay? What's going on? He just says, my medicine in the house. Terry begins helping the old man through the cemetery. And it's not just any cemetery because he notices as the as the moonlight begins to cast itself upon the surrounding area. The cemetery is next to a manor, a mansion, this large, gothic-looking structure that this old man seemingly lives in. And as they make their way towards this house, Terry looks at him and he's like, you know, you were pretty kick-ass over there. I'm Terry. Terry McGinnis. The man pauses before responding. Bruce Wayne. At the mansion, Terry gets Bruce into an armchair is able to give him his medicine, and Bruce is able to relax the pain he feels in his chest subsiding, even for just a moment. Terry kind of looks around. He's never been in a mansion like this before. He's only been in run-down apartments and for a very short time was on the streets, any time that he would run away for an extended period of time. And as he turns to look at this old man Bruce, he's like, you know, this is a amazing place. You said your name's Bruce Wayne, and he turns around, and Bruce has fallen asleep. Terry, feeling awkward, is like, okay, well, I guess I'm just gonna gonna go then. Opens the door to find this large black dog barking at him. He shuts the door immediately, and he says, okay, maybe I'll just give my dad a call. And as he looks for a phone, he starts to hear a weird sound emanating from another room, makes his way into the other room, and he finds this large grandfather clock. And inside, the source of the sound, a bat. A bat has somehow been trapped inside this father clock and is not too happy about it, making its chittering sounds and flapping against the clock. Terry opens up the grandfather clock and tries to reach in to free this bat, when all of a sudden, the grandfather clock opens. It slides out to him, and he's startled by this as the bat makes its way out from behind the clock and heads down into this strange passageway. Terry pushes open the clock even more to find stairs leading somewhere. And against his better judgment, realizing, oh, this is like a horror movie, this is how this starts, takes a deep breath and he makes his way down the stairs. And once he gets to the bottom... He sees this large black space. He doesn't know what's down there. It's no light. And he looks to his left and he sees a light switch. It's weird having this down here. So he turns the light switch on and lights begin to flick open. The large space at the base of the stairs begins to illuminate as we see the Batcave. Terry is astonished by this. You know, he'd heard stories of the Batman, but... It's been years since the Batman was even seen, and the last time he showed up was before Terry was even born. Terry starts to make his way through looking at all of the memorabilia, all of the amazing things that he had only heard stories about when he comes upon a costume case, showcasing different costumes from what he assumes were either Batman in his younger years or partners of his. And his eyes settle on this all-black suit With a yellow insignia. And as he reaches up to touch it, he feels a heavy blow to the back of his head. He turns to find Bruce, angry, standing over him like a monster from hell. And he runs Terry out of there. Out of this cave. Out of the house. Down the grounds and out the front gate with this large black dog barking at him the whole way through. Terry is just shaken up by the whole thing. And he's just like, you know, whatever, man. And he starts to make his way home. Finally finds his way onto a bus. And we cut to Terry hops off the bus. And he finds a strange sight. His apartment building is surrounded by police cars. And it's not until he gets closer that he realizes something's wrong. Something's happened. He gets closer, makes his way underneath the caution tape and into the apartment building where he finds Graffiti. Graffiti saying, ha, ha, ha. Terry runs up through the hallways up to his apartment and finds that the door is unlocked. He finds his mother, Mary McGinnis, standing there with police. She embraces him and he's like, what's what's happening? What's going on? Where's dad? And she looks at him and she says, they, they surprised him. And as he's standing there in the doorway, he hears from one of the police officers, like, this is definitely the work of the Jokers. They even left a playing card left in the body. Playing card emblazoned with a J, signature of the Jokers. Terry pushes past them into the actual apartment itself, shouting, Dad! As we cut to the funeral. This is where we get introduced to Mary and Matt McGinnis. Matt is Terry's younger brother, the two of them watching as Warren's body is laid to rest. The latest victim of the Jokers. And this is where Terry meets Derek Powers. Face-to-face for the very first time, he meets a man who, from his understanding, wouldn't give Warren or anyone of their social class the time of day. What is he doing here? And Derek is cordial, though has an air of arrogance about him. Puts his hand on Terry's shoulder, saying, It's just such a shame living in a dangerous neighborhood like that. Break-ins happen all the time. After a few more condescending comments, he lets Terry know, Warren was a valued member of the community. We'll be looking after him. And after you. We'll be in touch and he goes to leave with his son Paxton. Terry takes this for a moment, as Mary and Matt are trying to console each other and him as well, and something keeps clicking for him. Something keeps itching at the back of his skull. Break-ins happen all the time, is what Derek said. But something didn't add up. Terry heads back to the crime scene that night, and finds that making his way and avoiding police, avoiding red tape, he gets to his apartment door and finds that the door wasn't broken. The door was unlocked. No forced entry. Why would he let them in? Why would he let the Jokers into their apartment? Warren wasn't a dummy, and he wasn't naive enough to think that he could just leave their doors unlocked. They live in Lower Gotham, after all. So something's off. Something doesn't make sense. And Terry, walking through the apartment, is reliving the conversations he's had, the arguments he's had with his father. When he comes into his office room, seeing this computer, and he notices that there's something missing from the computer desk. A lot of it was cleared out. His laptop was, Terry assumes, possessed by Wayne Powers because it is a work laptop that has his identity codes, all of that stuff in it. And he notices, even more important than that, there's a picture missing. A picture of him, his mother, and his father. He starts to look around the room, and after lowering himself and seeing underneath the desk, finds it tucked away between the bottom of the desk and the wall. He reaches down, he grabs it, and he looks at it, and he sees that the back frame has been torn. He opens it up, and he finds a thumb drive. Meanwhile... We see at this moment, we get a quick cut over to the clock tower, this beautiful clock tower in the middle, right on the border between Upper Gotham and Lower Gotham, almost a border separating the two sections, the two districts of Neo-Gotham, and Melanie stands alone. Clock chimes midnight, Terry doesn't show up because Terry has somewhere else to be. He arrives at the gate to Wayne Manor, and pressing on the intercom, the wind and the storm beginning to pick up, he says, I don't know what this is. My dad felt like he had to hide it, and he died. Whatever this is, it cost my old man his life. I need your help. Terry makes this plea to Bruce, knowing that if Bruce is who he thinks he is, then he knows... What it's like to lose. And he knows what it's like to want revenge on crime. If he's really the Batman, he'll help him get revenge on the Jokers. And there's no answer. Terry, frustrated, punches the intercom and he says, I should have known you wouldn't care. We're all too small for you, right? Up there in your ivory tower. we we'll stay in your ivory tower, you whacked out old fraud. And he begins to walk away when all of a sudden, the gate opens. Finding his way inside, Terry is face-to-face with Bruce Wayne, the former Batman. And Bruce, after being pled to by Terry, agrees to help Terry investigate the Thumb Drive and the Jokers. However, he says, once we get our answers, we turn this over to the police. Terry hesitantly agrees and says, Okay, so we're going to figure out where the Jokers live, and then you're going to help me beat them up, right? Bruce shakes this off, and he says, no, I'm going to help you learn how to investigate a crime. Batman had many names. The one I was most proud of, the world's greatest detective. Now let's get to work. Which closes Act 1 and brings us to Act 2A, Journey Into Night. And here, we see the investigation begins, which means it's a montage time, baby! You know how much I love my montages, and we basically get an investigation montage. Terry tells Mary he's doing after-school work, him having to move in with her following the death of Warren, and that apartment building being no longer safe. The montage is mainly focused around Bruce and Terry doing the detective work, the stuff that I always love about Batman, two of them learning how to track Terry is tracking Joker's sightings, trying to decode the thumb drive. However, because he is not so good at this, he has to lean on Bruce. But even Bruce is a little thrown off by the thumb drive, saying that this is this is Wayne Tech. You know, I designed this to not be hackable. It's my company. So this is going to be very difficult and it's going to take a while. So they put all of their effort into trying to track down the Jokers because Bruce believes once he gets a pinpoint on their headquarters, he'll give that to his old friend, the Commissioner Gordon, and they'll be able to set up a sting operation. However, Terry has taken this a little too on the chin and he seems to be enjoying himself a little bit too much, including his on the street... Uh, following jokers he is doing his little incognito you know hood up like trying to get a beat in on uh on the jokers following them and during this montage terry finds himself once again face to face with this batsuit and he inquires about it asking bruce you know this thing is cutting edge like synaptic controls neuromuscular amplification flight capability and Bruce you know mentions that you know it's, that's not all it's also got a cybernetic connection to the back computer and he taps the chest symbol saying you know this is what it signifies the yellow glowing symbol means that it's connected and wired into the back computer allows me to control it allows an autopilot mode if necessary and also allows a remote shutdown so don't get any ideas And Terry just kind of shrugs, and he's like, look, I get it, but it's still pretty cool. Eventually, Terry and Bruce track the Jokers to their hideout. Bruce gives Terry all of the information they found. They're still not able to break the thumb drive just yet, but he gives Terry the evidence that they need to go after the Jokers, and he tells him to contact Commissioner Barbara Gordon. The two of them make their way up out of the cave into the manor and to the front door, and... Terry all of a sudden stops, and he's like, oh, hold on, Uh, I, I forgot my backpack. Bruce is old, he says, go get it. Terry runs back down to the cave, and Bruce, for a moment, watches as Terry goes, and there's a bit of deja vu for just a split second. And then he looks down, and he sees his dog, Ace, looking up at him. He shakes his head, and he says, no, that's behind us. Just then, Terry runs out with his backpack and he's like, all right, later, old man. And he runs off. Bruce shuts the door. But before he does, watching Terry goes, there's a moment where he looks back over his shoulder towards the grandfather clock and then shuts the door. But of course, Terry is not going to Commissioner Gordon. No, no, no. We cut over to the Joker's hideout. Terry basically tucked around an alleyway looking at this rundown warehouse. It's an old warehouse in the Narrows. Hardly anybody comes down here, and it makes a great place for the Jokers to hang out. Terry is not interested in them getting justice served by the GCPD. He's interested in vengeance. He wants revenge for his dad. And so he has come to the Narrows with a goal and with some toys. He reaches into his backpack, and he pulls out... An old utility belt that he pulled from one of the costume cases. Links it around his chest. And then he pulls out a very familiar mask once worn by Nightwing. Yeah, I know, I know. But I love when he does this in Lost Soul, and I just, I love it. So, we're getting it here! So, he puts on the Nightwing mask, has the utility belt wrapped around him, and he slips into Joker's HQ. However terry is not anywhere near the kind of stealth master that batman once was so he is quickly discovered and all hell breaks loose and we get this really fun action sequence where terry in the belly of the beast is just giving it to the jokers them more or less recognizing him sort of they're like hey he reminds me of somebody and Terry is just haphazardly using bat gadgets in, like, all the wrong ways. Like, he tries to use the bat grapple to, like, actually shoot somebody, and it just, like, shoots past them. And it's all just wacky nonsense. Camp is hell. And somehow, Terry is still gaining the upper hand because he's scrappy. He is creative, and he's using that to his advantage. And what I want this to be is a showcase for Terry's natural skills as like a brawler, as kind of a trickster. The way I always envisioned it, the difference between Batman's fighting style versus Terry's fighting style is like if we had to do RPG terms, Bruce is like a tank. Bruce is heavy, especially in this later uh, stage of his life. He hit like a truck. He could take the the abuse very similar to how he is portrayed in matt reeves as the batman where he is just a monster he's a tank where terry is more of a rogue he's a trickster he is able to weave in and out and use his creativity to gain the upper hand however as terry begins to get the upper hand he realizes very quickly that he is still one kid against an entire gang and he begins to be surrounded and just as it looks like all hope is lost the skylight breaks open but it's not the cavalry it's the royal flush gang royal flush gang decked out in new costumes descend upon the jokers queen jack ace ten No king, very notably, but they begin just riding in on their floating playing cards, which I always thought was super cool. And they begin laying waste to the Joker's hideout, bombing it, torching it. Ten is specifically using what looks like flare sparklers, kind of similar in visuals to like Jubilee's powers, just setting off like miniaturized little sparkler explosions. And the Jokers are just shocked by this. They're just panicking. They're, They're hoodlums. They're not like used to this kind of organized militaristic attack. Terry is able to escape in the confusion and is able to make his way out back to the alleyway where he started, breathing heavily as he slumps against the wall, when all of a sudden, here hears a voice come through the mask, saying, We need to talk, Mr. McGinnis. We cut to the Batcave. Terry returns sheepishly, knowing that he's in trouble. He's like, Look, I, I know what you said, but the Jokers had to pay for what they did. I just don't know what happened. I don't know who those guys are. And Bruce says, I had a visual connection through your mask. I know who they are. And I'm starting to think that the death of your father is a lot more complicated than we originally thought. Because if the royal Flush gang is involved, this goes much further down the rabbit hole. And so here we get... Not just for Terry, but also the audience who, if they're not familiar with, a background on the Royal Flush Gang. They are a generational crime family. Their gimmick is, of course, based on playing cards, and they were the final case of the Batman. However, though they still seem to be active after the Batman's disappearance, they haven't been sighted in 10 years. So we're not sure exactly what's happening here. However, Bruce, using his detective skills and a little bit of common sense, uh, deduces that the Jokers were likely being used by the Royal Flush Gang as their enforcers in Lower Gotham. It's probably the reason why the Jokers were able to gain or able to have such free reign in that area, because the Royal Flush Gang probably stopped them from having any kind of involvement in Upper Gotham. They are have what seems to be been hiding out there and ruling over it from the shadows. And now they're tying up loose ends. So the Royal flesh gang might just be the key to finding out what happened to Warren and why Terry mentions the playing card tech. He's like, dude, they are I mean, from what you're describing to me and Bruce has been giving him almost like a slideshow of their previous appearances in or on the back computer. And Terry's looking at that, and he's like, yeah, but none of them, like, came flying in on playing cards, did they? And Bruce stops for a moment, and he looks at him, and he's like, did you say playing cards? And the two of them talk, and Terry describes how they flew in. And Bruce, after hesitating for a moment, starts back on the back computer, pulling up some files, and he says, these, from what you're describing, they're similar to an experimental design from Wayne Powers. Powers might be involved with the Royal Flush Gang. And he says, we don't know exactly what their plan is, but we know that there is a through line. And Terry's like, okay, well, we gotta figure out how they're connected, right? And Bruce says, well, we may have a way to find out, and we may have the perfect opportunity. And he shows an invite for the Warren Memorial Ball at Wayne Powers' headquarters, Terry is taken aback by this. They didn't receive anything for this. It's his father's memorial, a charity ball meant to quote-unquote raise money for the family of Warren and also for the affected neighborhood in Lower Gotham. But Terry and his family never received an invitation. Also, Bruce brings up It might give us the perfect opportunity to get into the thumb drive, because, again, it is Wayne Tech, and I designed this to be nigh unhackable. But, if we can somehow get into Derek's office, he has master codes, he has a bypass that can get into anything, and we can use this event to get answers for both of us. Which cuts us over to the private estate of Derek Powers. He's sitting there drinking his scotch as the Royal Flush Gang arrives, flying in on their playing cards and setting down. Now, the Royal Flush Gang is, again, very similar to their appearance in uh, in Batman Beyond. And we get the identities of the Royal Flush Gang. Jack is, in fact, Paxton Powers, Derek's son. Queen is his wife, Esperanza. Ace seems to be just this silent, maybe a robot, hulking and large and above everything. And Ten is revealed to be Melanie. Derek is revealed as the king to the audience, and he has been coordinating the Royal Flesh Gang as his own personal strike force, using them to essentially do his bidding where he tells them to go, they go. He hasn't been active as king since acquiring Wayne Powers ten years ago. And after Batman nearly dismantled the old Royal Flush Gang, Derek went into rebuild mode. Much like a NBA team who has self-destructed and is looking for their next star-making forward, he shifted his focus. Shifted his focus to becoming a business czar rather than a thief. And has been successfully acquiring businesses as time has gone on. And thanks to the Royal Flush Gang, he's been able to destroy competitors, halt supply lines, and push chess pieces into the right position for him to become the most powerful man in the city. Now, with the Jokers off the board, the involvement with them won't be discovered. And that's essentially what Paxton lets Derek know, saying that they're gone. No one's going to find out that we were using them as our own personal enforcers in Lower Gotham. We can't be connected. Melanie, however, shows remorse for killing the Jokers. Basically says that she doesn't know why they needed to die if enough money would keep them complacent. Paxton shuts her down immediately. He's like, look, they were low-class trash. Low-class trash has no place being associated with us, being associated with what we do. And the two begin to argue but are broken up by Derek who says that we need to turn our attention back to our project and to this memorial ball. The ball is of course for public image while the project is for enriching the family. And of course when it comes to the Powers family, family comes first. So we get a cut to the ball. The Warren Memorial Ball is this... Ridiculous, swanky event. The Riesco banners are all over the place. One little photo of Warren Riesco. And this isn't really to help out Warren's family. It's an excuse for the rich and powerful to get together and sip wine and enjoy fancy food. However, this ball is about to be turned on its head. Because who shows up? Bruce Wayne... And Terry McGinnis, the former CEO and minority ho- shareholder of Wayne Powers and the son of the man they're supposed to be honoring. Bruce arrives first, arriving alone, and kicks up all kinds of media attention. People wanting to know, why has Bruce Wayne made his way to the public eye. We haven't seen him publicly in years, so what brings him here? And we get this really nice scene between Bruce and Derek where they are just going back and forth. This is their first meeting in person in almost a decade. And so they have some witty barbs with each other exchanging very subtle insults when all of a sudden the camera shifts and attentions start to shift as who else shows up Terry McGinnis with his mother and brother, Mary and Matt McGinnis. Derek is shocked by this. He doesn't know how they knew that this was happening. He didn't give them an invitation. But Terry's here with his family to honor his father. And everyone's snapping pictures. Everyone's like, oh, Terry, you got got to have a group photo with Bruce and with Derek. Wayne Powers and McGinnis and all this stuff. So Terry is, quote unquote, introduced to Bruce by... Derek and Derek is like oh of course you know we honored you and I'm glad that you finally you know got back to us we weren't sure if you were going to make it all of course making a show for the cameras and then they take a nice little picture where Terry looks incredibly uncomfortable and then Derek says here at Wayne Powers we're of course focused on family so I'd like you to meet my family And Terry is introduced to Paxton, formally, of course, for the first time, Esperanza, and Melanie. The two of them seeing each other for the first time since the whole kerfuffle with the Jokers, and Terry suddenly realizing and remembering that he was supposed to meet with her. The two of them are incredibly awkward seeing each other again. However, they both play it off. With Melanie, just as much as Terry, acting like they've never met before. Which kind of bums him out, to be honest. Following this, everyone makes their way into the main gala. And Terry and Bruce split up. Bruce is to infiltrate Derek's office using his prior knowledge of the building through secret passageways. All this stuff. While Terry is going to provide a distraction. And he does so by doing a little dance with Melanie. And this is... 100% 100% ripped straight from Mask of Zorro*. I will be transparent with you. It is ripped from Mask of Zoro. It just is. I understand that. I understand I'm a hack, but we need this. We need this. So Terry and Melanie dance, and Melanie elaborates on the backstory a little bit as they begin a slower dance. Melanie was adopted by Powers as a child from a Narrows orphanage. She was kept away from the public eye to quote-unquote protect her from Derek's business rivals, and she mentions that even though she still, you know, gets out from under her father's nose, she was kind of sad that they never got to have their rendezvous, and Terry apologizes and then says, maybe I can make it up to you here. And then they go into their really just amazing dance number. It's wonderful. It's amazing. Whatever you're picturing, it's even better than that. Meanwhile, Bruce is using his master access codes as well as Derek's access codes and overrides, since he has appropriately shut Bruce out of a lot of things, to finally access the thumb drive. And this thumb drive reveals to Bruce and to us, the audience, what this project is that... Derek was working on. This is Project Blight, a nerve gas that targets healthy cells and erodes them quickly, efficiently, and viciously. The only treatment is high forms of a specific radiation, but exposure is incredibly deadly otherwise and can kill a person within a day. And we are shown this because Bruce while going through the thumb drive, finds photos of Harry after his exposure. And through linking up with the private files of Project Blight installed into Derek's computer, he finds more photos showing Harry's condition deteriorate until he becomes dust. He also finds through his research that there is a private facility housing the factory developing this gas and that the plan is to sell this gas, this agent of chaos, to numerous foreign leaders in their warlike squabbles. Derek is set to make a lot of money being a warmonger, and this could threaten to tear down everything that Bruce Wayne and the Wayne family have stood for. Terry and Melanie finally finish their dance and afterwards promise to meet each other tomorrow night at midnight, this time for real Bruce Wayne makes his way back to the floor Derek is very suspicious of this young man dancing with his daughter but he can't say anything because media is everything for the palace family and so as the night ends we return to the Batcave cave where Terry and Bruce go over their findings and Terry realizing that there's like a facility like this facility is in old Gotham like this takes a lot. Developing a chemical weapon has to take a lot of manpower. Who is who would be okay keeping that secret? Where are all the workers? And Bruce shakes his head and he's he meant, you know, he concedes that there's too many questions and not enough leads. And Terry's like, "Okay, so let's go get those answers. Put on the suit and go deal with this." And he motions towards the bat suit. And Bruce shakes his head. He's like, "That's not who I am anymore." You know, we we need to get this to the police. We need to get this to Commissioner Gordon. And Terry says, look, he's using your company. He's using your legacy to make weapons. This is going to go all on you as much as it is on Derek Powers. He's going to ruin your family name. You're Batman. And Bruce says, I was Batman. And we need to figure out a way to solve this without ruining my family's name and without letting them get away with this. So Bruce, you know, details that, you know, the facility does need to be dealt with and this would deal a blow to powers and the Royal Flesh Gang, but there's no way that he can go do this. He's not putting on the suit again. He promised himself never again. And Terry looks at the suit and he looks at him and he says, what if someone else wore it? Which brings us to Act 2B, Nightfall, and we cut to Old Gotham, a facility where they are making blight uh, in Amusement Mile. Amusement Mile half-flooded because of, most likely, the near apocalypse of 09. Terry is in the suit. We got our first full look of Terry in the suit, standing atop a nearby building, and we are seeing him in all his glory! finally wearing the suit yellow bat symbol emblazoned upon the suit glowing to show that he has that connection to the back computer and terry's a little unwieldy he's a little clumsy he's not very good at using his smarts and his parkour ability to fly because the glide is not something that he's used to he hops off the building He's a little, you know, unwieldy. He's wobbling, making it from building to building very much in the same way that, like, we saw Miles Morales and Into the Spider-Verse kind of learning how to web swing. It's very much that. So Terry, thankfully, is patched into the back computer. He's guided by Bruce on, you know, how to glide, how to use the gadgets he's got. And he says, this is the one and only time we're doing this. You go, you sabotage this facility, you come back, we're done. But Terry's having too much fun, man. He's Batman, even if just for one night. He's Batman. Terry makes his way to the facility and tries to bypass security, being guided by Bruce. He tells him, look, you got all the time in the world. Don't rush through this. It's important that you get this right because we do not want to let them know that we're here. However, Terry is trying to rush because he knows that there is a ticking clock to his date with Melanie. He looks at the time display, and it is 11 p.m. He's only got an hour. So Terry makes his way into the facility, dispatches the few guards that are there, and finally finds the workers. There are people working on Blight. They're just not allowed to leave. He finds numerous people who are basically being treated like slaves run down members of Old Gotham, members of Lower Gotham caged and forced to create this evil weapon at the cost of their lives at the cost of their livelihood and for their trouble are being chained up at night so that they can't let the world know what they're working on we see some of them with the same black patches and some of them have died because of how dangerous Blight is as a chemical weapon bruce seeing all this he basically says you have to destroy the facility you have to destroy the facility and then you can try and get people out terry is not about this he's like i'm saving these people first and then we can figure out what to do with the facility bruce argues with him telling him i will shut down that suit we came here to do this for my family for my legacy we need to stop this first. This is our priority. Terry doesn't budge. He says, no. People come first. He manages to free one prisoner who is being bullied by the guards and asks her if she can help him out with the uh, with kind of guiding him through the facility. Uh, she introduces herself as Rosalie Roe Rowan. And the two of them make their way through the facility into the blight production floor. But the workers aren't there. They've been cleared out. Terry thinks this is weird, and he looks at her, and he's like, why would they clear the floor? Like, they're trying to get this deal done, right? They're trying to process this. And Ro looks at him, and she's like, well, it's protocol when the alarms are tripped. Terry realizes too late. He rushed through it. He tripped the silent alarm, and the Royal Flush Gang descend upon him. So we get... An action scene between Terry and the Royal Flush Gang that comprising, of course, Ace, Queen, Jack, and Ten. Terry uses his scrappy brawler background to take control of the fight, keeping them off balance because they're expecting Batman seeing him in this suit. Some of them are shocked to see him ace for all of his robotic qualities, hesitates for a moment before engaging. Terry, on the other hand, is not hesitating one bit. The suit is enhancing his strength, his speed, his reflexes, and he is able to bob and weave and use the environment to his advantage, at one point getting a pretty solid shot on Ten and knocking her off of her glider, off of her cart. Queen shouts out, Melanie, instead of Ten, in concern for t- her compatriot, and that's when Terry realizes, Melanie. Melanie. Melanie is part of the royal flesh gang all of these members of the royal Flush gang are the family that he met at the ball and so he is taken aback by this he's distracted and he gets overwhelmed he gets stomped down by ace who for a robot seems to be taken particular glee in stomping batman's lights out terry is under the threat of death he is restrained when who walks out of the shadows but Derek Powers. Batman, my old friend. I've been waiting. Derek subsequently reveals himself as king to Terry and Bruce. Bruce, eyes wide, realizing that the man who ended his career as the Dark Knight has also been in control of his company, his family's legacy, ever since. Derek also continues to taunt Batman. He brings up the incident from 20 years ago. Motioning to Ace and saying, After all, the Royal Flush Gang, we believe in blood for blood. Derek orders Ace to execute Batman. Ten hesitates in helping, which allows Bruce to use the Batcomputer link to take control of the suit. Brushing off Ten, battering Ace, jumping out of the fray, and Bruce pilots the suit to break free and escape the facility with an unconscious terry along for the ride terry awakens back at the Batcave, cave and the two of them have a little bit of a hashing out bruce and terry bruce blaming terry for an experience and for failure in sabotaging the facility while terry is shocked at how callous bruce is towards the workers there you know they are already suffering living in lower gotham and old gotham they're suffering even more being part of whatever this is How do you not care? Why do you care more about this, about your family, and about what you represent than actual people's lives? And he suggests that they regroup. They try again in a few days. Bruce is like, no, we need to go back there tomorrow, and we need to end this. Terry says, no, they're going to know that we're coming. They're going to raise security. We'll try again in a couple days, one night. Won't make a difference. Bruce barks back. One night always makes the difference. And after an uneasy silence, Terry brings up what Derek said. What did he mean, blood for blood? What happened to you? You haven't been Batman in 20 years. What happened? And Bruce tells Terry the truth. He tells him what happened. How a broken, run-down man had a brief, even just for just a moment crisis of conscience, and he used a gun. He says, that night I broke my one rule, and so the Batman ended. Bruce, because of the events of this, was broken. He was broken by possibly killing someone. He never found out if the youth survived, but it didn't matter. Even the mere idea of possibly using the weapon that killed his parents to end someone else's life, he shut himself off to the world. He had already been on the outs with the rest of the Bat family, and he decided that he would stop being Batman and he would try to put his efforts towards improving the city the way that Bruce Wayne could. He tried to make up for the guilt that he felt, tried to make up for everything that he felt was wrong with the Batman and with his crusade, but eventually he fell out of favor with the city. Every single time he did a new project, he announced a new charitable foundation Something else happened. Something went wrong. His efforts were twisted because of the frigid system that he was locked into. And on the opposite end, Derek seemed to use the system to grow his wealth, almost in, from what Bruce can assume, a drive for revenge for Ace to build up this empire and to take the city that took his boy And I want this to be, if you can't already figure it out, the argument against the whole infrastructure meme. The idea that, oh, if Batman really wanted to install change, he'd give money and do this stuff. Bruce did that stuff. He was already doing it as Batman, alongside being Batman. And we see in this, because of how corrupt the system is, how big the class divide is, it doesn't matter. What Bruce does, because Gotham is fundamentally, systematically broken. And so Terry mentions, hearing all this, that Melanie, he just heard from her that she was an orphan. And that she has been manipulated by Derek to fill this void that he's had since that night 20 years ago. Bruce, realizing that he's right, begins to connect the dots and realizes that the disappearances that Leslie mentioned line up with his experience that night. The Royal Flush Gang that he fought when the Batman ended 20 years ago was not the same Royal Flush Gang he had been tracking for over a year. King was the same, obviously, but the others weren't. The others were inexperienced. They seemed surprised whenever he ran up against them, like they were seeing him for the first time. It's almost like Derek was recruiting soldiers for a war. Leslie told him that teens had been disappearing, and Bruce realizes that it was because Derek was kidnapping them, using them for his own gains, using them to be part of his gang. And when that seemingly didn't work out, he decided to go the legitimate way. Terry takes all this in, the two of them seeing each other almost for the first time. And Terry says, this is all your fault. Everything. You could have stopped this. You could have stopped this train of kids being manipulated and twisted by Derek Powers, but you didn't. You stopped caring about the people you were protecting and you let the psycho take control of the city. Our city. And because of that, my dad died. Because of this secret. Because of your secret. There's this long pause as the two don't know what to say. And Terry realizes, you know what? You were right to hang it up 20 years ago. Gotham's better off with no Batman. And he runs off. We cut over to the Powers of State, where the Royal Flush Gang returns home. And Derek berates Melanie for letting Batman get away, saying that her hesitation means that Batman is going to come back and he is going to be a problem. And Derek is upset. He is disturbed by the Batman's re-emergence. And he knows that where the Batman goes, the ruination of the Royal Flesh Gang is sure to follow. It happened 20 years ago, it's gonna happen again. So he knows that this is going to be a problem. He discovered the facility, Project Blight is in danger. We can't let the knowledge of this go public. So Derek decides we are going to shift focus. We are going to move the produced blight to New Bloodhaven. And then Paxton chimes in, the little sniveling weasel that he is, and he says, Hey, how about we just go all in, Scorched Earth style? Once we move the product, we'll bomb the facility. We'll get rid of all the evidence. And Melanie knows that when he says evidence, he doesn't just mean the machinery, the factory line. He means the workers. Melanie objects. She's tired of killing. Derek orders her to obey him, saying, If you're not going to obey this family, then you can leave and go back to the gutters where we found you. Melanie, just flabbergasted, goes to leave. She leaves the room begins to walk out of the entire estate when she's stopped by Esperanza. Esperanza, not her birth mother, but another lost soul picked up along the way that has been used and abused by Derek Powers for his own goals. And Esperanza appeals to Melanie, saying, like, we came into this family around the same time. This family has been good to us. We'd be ruined without them. Why are you like this? What is, what's changed? And Melanie looks at her feet and she says, there's a boy. And Esperanza sighs. She's like, look, I get it. It's easy to fall in love, but you can't let the potential of love stop you from acquiring your own potential, your own goals. We have a nice life here. This family has been very good to us and given us everything we've ever wanted. Melanie hesitates for a moment. And then she looks past Esperanza, off in the distance to the clock tower, and it's midnight. We hold on the clock tower, and then we pan down. We see that time has passed. It's now 1230. Rain is pouring. Storm has hit Gotham. And we find Terry running through the rain. Not sure where else to go. We see him arrive at the clock tower, breathing heavily. He knows that if Melanie is here, they can figure it out, but there's no sign of her. She's not there. Terry, forlorn, looks down at the ground, hands in his pockets, and begins to walk away. When all of a sudden, the beginning chords of a power ballad erupt, and we see... Melanie running through the rain towards him. This is, again, ripped straight from Dead Man's Hand. I love that episode. It is excellent, and it is largely because of this cheesy power ballad scene where the two star-crossed lovers unite. I love this, and we are going to rip that directly from here. However, the context is very different this time around, with Terry knowing who Melanie is at this point. The two of them embrace, they share a kiss, the music is playing, it's beautiful, when all of a sudden, Terry realizes that she's crying. He asks her what's wrong, and she reveals that her family's leaving, and she has to break up with Terry. We're moving to New Bloodhaven, we are abandoning Gotham, and I have to go with my family. She tells him it's over. She won't elaborate any further and she says, we leave tomorrow night. And Terry tries to dissuade her saying, you know, we can just, we can leave together. We can stick it out in Lower Gotham. We can live in the slums trying to figure things out on our own. And Melanie looks at him and she says, I can't. I can only be what he wants me to be. The two of them decide to spend the night together staring at the stars and they fall asleep in the park Terry wakes up the next morning and Melanie's gone he sits up his eyes going from sad to determined he knows what he has to do Terry arrives at Wayne Manor rings the buzzer rings it again and again but there's no answer ace doesn't even come down to greet him at the manor gates. Terry then thinks for a moment and he looks and he starts heading down to the cemetery where he first met Bruce. And as he makes his way down there near where he took that spill on the motorcycle he hears Bruce's voice and he's talking. He's not sure to who but as Terry gets closer we see Bruce sitting on an old rickety folding chair in front of a gravestone speaking to him, telling him about everything that's happened, saying you would be ashamed of what's happened to the city, what's happened to the estate, what's happened to me. And as we pan up past Bruce, we see that the gravestone reads, Alfred Pennyworth, father and friend. Bruce, after a moment, realizes Terry's there, and he stands up, almost embarrassed. He's never allowed someone to see him like this. Alfred passed some time ago, and Bruce has never gotten over it. But Terry isn't there to judge him. He isn't there to tell him that he is responsible for the city and the state that it's in. Terry says, I've been fighting my whole life to prove I meant something. Because living where I live, you're born, you live, and you die without every anyone remembering your name. Last night was the first time I felt like I meant something, because Batman means something to me, to the whole city, and I know how much guilt you have. I read up on you, your parents, everyone in your life that you lost. We have a chance to protect people who need it. We have a chance to protect everyone, not just the people in the high-rises, not just the people in the towers. Batman can mean something again, but I can't do it without you. If Powers gets away with this, if he uses your company, your name, to make weapons that hurt people like me, if Powers gets away with this, then what was this all for? And in this moment, Leslie Tompkins' words echo in Bruce's brain. ...and he finally realizes what Leslie had been trying to tell him all along. The two shake hands. Terry and Bruce agree to stop Derek Powers, the Royal Flush Gang... ...and stop the production of Blight once and for all. And then they'll go their separate ways. For one night, Batman can mean something again. By stopping this. By stopping what could potentially ruin so many lives... Bruce and Terry have the chance to make up for every sin that Batman has committed. And Bruce says, for one last time, the Dark Knight returns. Which brings us to Act 3, Night's End. Which begins that evening at the warehouse. The Blight facility is moving. It's rockin'. The workers are loading canisters of blight into this large transport that's going to move all of the produced nerve gas out into the new facility over New Bloodhaven, because New Bloodhaven is always the bridesmaid and never the bride. And this transport is being overseen by Jack, Ten, and Ace, and we very quickly get into the action as terry sneaks his way into the warehouse observing and mapping out everything that's about to happen jack rounds up the workers after majority of the blight canisters are on board and gives one hell of a villain monologue basically saying like You know, we've been at this for some time. Your service, however voluntary, has been instrumental in making sure that this project succeeds. None of what is contained on this transport would be possible without your work. You and each and every person who has come before you have the appreciation of the Royal Flush Gang. Know that your legacy will be what is loaded onto this transport. You have purpose. You matter in the grand scheme of you participating in what actually matters, which is our success. And ultimately, your sacrifice will be remembered. At that exact moment, Jack activates a large cage, trapping the workers inside and begins to set charges to destroy the facility. When we get that classic Batman entrance, the skylight breaks open, Batman comes hurtling down. Terry, decked out in the suit once again, lands very similarly to Bruce's entrance at the beginning of the film. And it is time for Terry versus the Royal Flush Gang, round two, but This time is different. This fight is different because Terry has learned. He knows what to expect. And now he's utilizing the connection with Bruce via the back computer to allow Bruce to guide him in some instances, uh, take over for his movements to fight because these people, this Royal Flush Gang, was trained by King. And who knows King's fighting styles better than Bruce Wayne? In fact... You might say that it's two generations of Batman fighting as one. As Terry seems to be getting the upper hand against the Royal Flush Gang and the lacking number of guards, Jack takes a moment to speak into a communicator saying he's here. Terry gains the upper hand against the Royal Flush Gang, dispatching the rest of the guards via his trickster methods. I said it before, I'll say it again. This man is scrappy, he is creative, he knows how to use not just the environment, but also momentum. He is studied, he has been fighting since he was a kid. However, he is surprised by the viciousness of Jack and the speed of 10, all of them, each member of the Royal Flush Gang has more or less a gimmick, right? 10, speedy, has little sparkler explosives. Jack, incredibly vicious, uses knives and this like Assassin's Creed style wrist blade gauntlet to try and gain killing blows. Ace, Ace is just a big boy. Big boy doing big boy things, overpowering Terry. However, He is a little, like we said before, hesitant to initially engage with Batman. Terry is able to put up a good fight until Jack gains the upper hand by getting a cheap shot and slipping a blade into Terry's side. Terry is temporarily disabled and then restrained full body by Ace. However, Terry is able to use a flashbang using the gadgets that Bruce has set up for him to slip away, and in the confusion, encounters Ten one last time. Terry appeals to Ten, saying, you can't be okay with this, killing innocent people, and Melanie, though showing hesitancy, stays true to her role as Ten by saying, I have to put my family first. Terry responds, Powers only puts himself first. Melanie bites back, you don't know me. And Terry responds, yes, I do. And he pulls up his mask to reveal his identity. Ten is shocked at this and drops her weapons, staring in disbelief that Terry is the same man who she's been fighting for the last few nights. And Terry says, you don't have to be his soldier. We are who we choose to be. At that exact moment, Ace barrels through, Terry pulling his mask back down, and he's able to pummel Terry into submission and restrains him. However, Melanie sets off a sparkler right in Ace's face, allowing Terry to slip out. She has chosen to be who she wants to be. At that exact moment, though, the charges begin to go off, explosions rocking the facility and the workers shouting for someone to help them. Terry turns to Melanie and says, free the prisoners, I'll tango with the muscle. Melanie heads off to begin freeing the workers as Terry battles Ace and Jack. However, all of a sudden, King and Queen arrive. Lowering in from the skylight atop their playing card gliders, Derek Powers is decked out in full King regalia. He has dressed up to see the death of the Batman. He sends Queen and Ace after Melanie, telling them to stop her from freeing the prisoners, while he and Jack deal with Terry. Terry is trying to hold his own. He has learned he is utilizing Bruce's help for them to essentially fight as one. However, King and Jack still have the numbers, and they overwhelm Terry, and one of the explosions sends one of the canisters of Blight, one of the big old, like... containing the remnants of Blight right on top of Terry, pinning him down. King tells Jack to finish the job while he gets the transport moving and heads off to pilot the transport out to New Bloodhaven while Jack readies his knife. However, Jack, because he is who he is, he can't help but monologue and bully the poor bat that's pinned under this machinery. And he gloats... Saying that he's waited years to do something that would make his father proud. And what could make his father more proud than killing the Batman? But before I do, I want to see the face of who's been giving us so much trouble. And he pulls off the mask to reveal Terry. And he takes a moment, Paxton being overwhelmed by this knowledge. And he says, I can't believe it. The McGuinness Kid... Ha! Oh, my luck! How lucky am I to end two generations of trash! Terry pauses, and he looks up at him and says, Were you involved in my father's murder? Jack laughs, saying, Involved? Who do you think ended the old man's life? And this hits Terry like a truck. Terry gasping for air, not just because of the large vat pinning him down but also with the knowledge that his father's killer now stands before him jack continues with my dear boy i left my calling card and everything and that's when terry realizes the card that was found plunged into warren's chest said j for jack Meanwhile, Melanie is using her speed to evade Queen and Ace and free the prisoners. Explosions are rocking the facility, and she is dipping and diving and dodging, trying to stay one step ahead of her royal flush gang compatriots and trying to save these poor workers who are trapped and are surely to die if she's not able to free them. Explosions continue to rock the facility as the transport begins to take off. Heading out into the sky, Terry, overcome by rage and vengeance, tries to push the vat off of him, but can't. Jack is taking too much glee in this, and he's taking too long. Bruce, sitting in the Batcave, understands where Terry's been. He understands where he is, and he remembers the thought of what it would be like to have his parents' killer in front of him. And Bruce gives him three simple words. Justice, not vengeance. Telling Terry to focus on the transport and not on killing this man. After a moment, Terry realizes what he's being pinned under and says, I've got room for both. He has a batarang unlock from his gauntlet. He throws it up and it bursts, cracking the blight container, and the nerve gas spills directly onto Jack, absolutely enveloping him as he lets out a shriek. Bruce then activates the rocket boots that push Terry backwards out from underneath the machinery, and he heads off into the sky, leaving Jack behind, who pulls off his mask and his gloves to reveal the black patches already forming due to his exposure. Meanwhile, Queen and Ace have Melanie cornered. However, Queen notices the rocketing Terry heading off into the sky after the transport, and she sends Ace after him while she and Melanie have a showdown. At the transport, already airborne, Terry arrives and landing onto the transport takes a moment. And this kind of gives the audience a moment to breathe because with all the action going on, Terry didn't realize how high up he's been. He looks back and he sees Gotham being left behind. Terry's never been up this high. He's never been this high in the air before. He's never even been on a plane. And so he is terrified. But after taking a moment, taking a deep breath, he steals himself and heads into the transport to confront King in the control room. And this is very much like the Captain America Red Skull confrontation at the end of the first Avenger. I personally love that fight, and I would like to see that more or less replicated here. Terry is using the Batarangs, King is just chopping them in half, he knows what to expect. He fought Batman for a while. And as Terry begins to get outmatched, he again relies on Bruce taking control of the suit to fight with him. However, King still outmatches both of them, tripping him, knocking him down, and taunting him, saying, I can see now you're no Batman, just a child playing pretend. He kicks Terry, picks him up, and throws him across the room. He's an old man, but his, uh, his suit gives him some augmentation just as much as Terry's does. And walking up to him, he grins, saying, I fought Batman for years, and he could never best me. I know every trick the original Batman knew at his peak. Terry shouts back, maybe, but you don't know a thing about me. King laughs and then begins to continue beating on him. Back with Queen and Melanie, the two of them are grappling and battling each other as the explosions continue to rock the facility. Melanie is trying to reason with Queen, telling her that we don't need to do this. These people didn't do anything. They should be allowed to live and queen is just she's too far gone and she's like she yells at her saying you've ruined everything we had something and you had to go and screw it up and melanie finally pulls her mask off and shouts at her look what he's turned us into the two of them look at each other in silence melanie gestures to the workers desperately crying for them to save them and she looks at not Queen. But Esperanza, who pulls her mask off as well, she says, We don't have to be what he made us. Queen takes a moment and then drops her scepter. The two embrace for a moment and then set off to free the prisoners and get them out of the facility. Back on the transport, we have established at this point that Bruce's way isn't working. Bruce knew how to fight king but the two of them were going back and forth years back and king knows all of his tricks he can't help terry anymore terry at one point after being dropped once again says i can't beat him if he's expecting everything i throw at him he knows what to expect from you and takes a moment and he says he doesn't know what to expect from me you gotta give me full control of the suit.' Telling. Bruce to sever the connection that he has with the Batsuit. The Batsuit and the Bat Computer, while being one, is not enough to topple King. Bruce is hesitant. He says, We can't do this. The connection between the Bat Computer and the Batsuit has been around for decades. We don't know what that would do to the suit. If I sever the connection with the Bat Computer, you're on your own. I can't. Be involved. I can't activate anything on the suit. I can't be there with you. Batman is my responsibility, my curse. It's mine alone to carry. And Terry, pushing himself back up from prone on the ground, says, Not anymore. Back with King, he approaches Terry, who has been face down, slowly trying to get himself back on his feet. And he continues to taunt him, calling him a bat fake. And he says, Still, even for a child, what you've done has been impressive. Forcing me to scrap years of work, bringing me back into the field, even turning my own family against me. Not bad for some clown who thinks he's Batman. He goes to grab Terry's shoulder, and Terry turns back to face him. The symbol is no longer yellow. Now that the connection has been severed, the light blares a bright red. As Terry exclaims, I am Batman! Terry, taking control of the suit, brings it to King, battling him, going back and forth, laying in shots. And again, Terry is not the same as Bruce, where Bruce was studied, he was trained, he trained with all the best fighters all around the world. Terry learned on the street. Terry learned that sometimes you gotta just go for the cheap shots. Terry is fighting dirty. He outfoxes King. And there are moments where King is just absolutely flabbergasted. He doesn't know how to react to this Batman. He knows how the old Batman fought, but he is unprepared for this Street Fighter to bring it to him like he is. Terry is able to gain the upper hand against King, kicking away his sword until... Ace arrives, bursting through into the room, picking up Terry and slamming him into the floor. King laughs. He stands up as Ace once again restrains Batman. And he says, Ah, Ace. Always there exactly when I need him. And this is when he reveals the truth about Ace. Ace is not a robot, unlike his... Appearances in Batman Beyond, the original cartoon, as well as Justice League Doom. Ace is a cyborg. It's here that he reveals that Ace wasn't shot by Bruce. At least not intentionally. Bruce was aiming for King, but King pulled Ace in front of him to take the bullet. He says, after that night all those years ago, I realized the weakness he showed in the field needed to be burned out of him citing that Ace's inexperience and panic is what allowed the situation to go sideways 20 years ago. He then describes how he subjected Ace to experiments and torture and turning him into what we see before him. A hulking brute who is more machine than man. And once he perfected the process, once he figured out how to fix the tweaks that allowed ace to retain some of his humanity he says he plans to do the same to melanie saying i can't have disobedient children and at that exact moment after pulling off ace's mask and showing the robot the robotic merged with the human features you see a single tear go down ace's human face Back at the facility, Esperanza and Melanie are able to lead the prisoners out, freeing them just as the main explosions take out most of the rest of the facility. As they arrive outside, they see that cops are pulling up. Cop cars, hearing the explosions, have arrived on the scene, and Esperanza looks to escape. But Melanie grabs her wrist, shaking her head, saying, Someone needs to tell them what happened here. Someone they'll believe. They won't believe these prisoners. You know Gotham doesn't respect anyone who doesn't have what we have. We can make up for what we've done, starting right now." And after a moment's hesitation, Esperanza hangs her head as the police close in on them. Back on the transport, King plans to execute Terry as soon as it arrives in New Bloodhaven and makes his way back to the controls in the cockpit. Terry, being held by Ace, tries to appeal to what's left of the human inside him, saying, If there's anything left of who you used to be in there, I need your help. Your king has hurt so many people already, and he's going to hurt more. Don't let him do to them what he's done to us. And after a brief moment, Ace loosens his grip, allowing Batman to slip out. Batman then throws a battering into the controls in front of King, causing the ship to malfunction and sending it down towards the waters between New Bloodhaven and Neo-Gotham. Batman clashes with King once again as fires start to ring out through the transport. The two are fighting tooth and nail, trying to end this, as an explosion rocks the cockpit and sends Ace to the side. Batman finally is able to defeat King, disarming him and dropping him to the floor. However, another explosion knocks both Batman and King aside, shattering one of the windows and sending the transport farther down towards the water. Terry is able to regain his footing and escapes out the window, activating the the glider wings as well as his jet boots until he hears a cry out. Derek Powers, unmasked, is shouting through the window, You can't leave me here. Batman doesn't kill. I know that better than anyone. Terry hangs in the air, and Bruce's words ring true to him. Justice, not vengeance. He makes his way back down towards the cockpit as the falling transport gets ever closer to the water, fires and smoke starting to envelop the vehicle. Batman reaches out for King, but another fire kicks up, kicking him backwards and not allowing him to reach into the window. He shouts out, jump for it, I'll catch you! And King, in his moment of desperation, readies himself. Derek Powers leaps out the window, but doesn't make it very far. As a large hand has wrapped itself around his ankle, and he looks back and sees Ace restraining him. He pulls him back into the cockpit as the fire envelops them. Derek powers his own monster, bringing about both of their ends. The transport crashes into the water and sinks down into the depths. Terry, left floating in the air, has witnessed the end of the Royal Flush Gang. Batman takes this moment to breathe it in, and then he heads back to Gotham. We then cut to another newscast, similar to the one that opened up Act 1, that basically walks us through the aftermath of these events. The discovery of Derek Power's illegal dealings allows a brighter light to be shown onto Wayne Powers, and the murder of Warren Riesco is finally solved through the confessions of Melanie and Esperanza, who enter a plea deal to expose the corruption that Powers had seeded through the city. They had been with Derek for a very long time and knew things, being part of the Royal Flesh Gang, that would allow police and the more noble denizens of Gotham to try and root out all of the corruption that has taken hold of the city, allowing both Melanie and Esperanza to have lighter sentences. Paxton Powers is missing, though his involvement in everything is unclear, with Melanie and Esperanza believing that Paxton was manipulated just as much as they were into doing Derek's bidding. The workers were reunited with their families, and Many disappearances and many missing persons reports were solved and, thankfully, had many people return home. Bruce Wayne, back in the public eye, after the ousting of Derek Powers as CEO, Bruce bought up the remaining shares that he had given to Derek Powers initially and is retaking control of Wayne Powers. Shortly before turning it back into Wayne Industries. More active efforts by Bruce Wayne have been implemented to rebuild Old Gotham and the Narrows, cleaning it up and trying to make a difference for those outside of Upper Gotham. And unsubstantiated reports say that there might have been a sighting of Gotham's legendary, almost urban myth at this point, The Batman. The reporter says, Is this a sign that Gotham's long journey into night has come to an end? Once again, the report pans out to show that it is being watched, this time by Mary and Matt McGinnis, sitting in their apartment, viewing everything that has transpired when a phone call comes up. Mary goes up to answer it, and the camera pans back through the apartment, into the room of Terry McGinnis. Passed out on his bed, the Batsuit crumbled up underneath the bed. He's woken up by his mother, who says, there's a call for you. Terry takes the phone, and Mary leans against the door and says, you didn't tell me you knew Bruce Wayne. Terry's eyes kind of widen. We cut to Terry arriving at an alleyway. An alleyway that if you are at all familiar with Batman, you would remember as... Crime Alley, we see Bruce laying down roses in the middle of the alleyway where his story began all those years ago. Terry walks up to him and Bruce says, this was where it started, my parents. This was where my journey began. And we can see that this means something to Terry, that he had, in a way, misjudged Bruce. Yes, Bruce came up with money and power and esteem, but his story started where Terry's did, in Lower Gotham. Bruce says, Someone once told me to remember where Batman began. Here, in the worst part of Gotham, the part where it needed help the most. This is where Batman began. Terry puts his hands in his pockets and sheepishly says, and where it ends, right? Bruce looks at the young man and says, well, maybe not. Terry looks surprised at him, and Bruce goes on to warn of more threats on the horizon, saying, Batman always attracts the worst the city can throw at it. He may be needed again. Terry realizes what this means. That last night wasn't a one-off, and that a partnership might just be forming. Bruce, realizing that Terry is picking up what he's laying down, says, this won't be a joyride. You'll need training, and you'll be risking your life night in and night out. Terry smiles, and he says, That's shway. I think I can handle it. Bruce smirks, extends his hand, and says, Very well then, Mr. McGinnis. Welcome to my world. The two clasp hands when the clock tower rings out throughout Gotham, signifying not just the time, but also that a brand new day has reached the city. Terry looks off to the clock tower in the distance, forlorn, and Bruce, realizing what the young man is going through, puts his hand on his shoulder, and he says, you did the right thing, both of you. Terry nods, saying, I know, but isn't Batman supposed to stop criminals, not fall in love with them? Bruce smiles, wrapping his arm around Terry's shoulder and begins guiding him out of the alleyway, out of the darkness, and into the light, saying, let me tell you about a woman named Selena Kyle. And the camera stays static as two generations of Batman head off into the light, and the camera slowly pans down to the roses laying on the ground, and zooms in until the screen fills with red. The camera then begins to zoom out showing that the red is now from the emblazoned bat symbol upon Batman's suit. Terry stands atop a building perched as the night sky begins to show signs of disturbance. Terry looks off into the distance, seeing red and blue lights, police cars, crime, but he's not deterred. Terry McGinnis has always been up for a challenge, and now, with the city more dangerous than it's ever been. That's a hell of a challenge. Terry leaps off of the building, and we get basically the final swing from Spider-Man films of old, where Terry, as Batman, is sailing through the air, through buildings, alongside flying cars, making his way, having become the symbol for this new era of Gotham City. Terry sails off, Into the night, as Batman begins again. Credits. And we do have a post-credits scene. Once the credits roll, we find ourselves in a hidden Wayne Powers facility. Where some scientists, clad in hazmat suits, are tending to Paxton Powers, who is alive. However, he was heavily exposed to the nerve gas. With the room filled with the light from radiation... The scientists say, we were able to catch it, but there were complications. Paxton turns his head to the scientists saying, what complications? The scientists all look at each other unsure and then say, kill the lights, lights turn off, and the room is suddenly lit by an eerie green glow. As Paxton pulls himself off of the operating table... He goes to a nearby mirror, and a sickening laugh begins to ring out across the room. As the camera pans up and over the operating table, it settles on Paxton, whose skin has turned a radiation-filled green. He turns, resembling a black skeleton enveloped in this green light, and Paxton Powers is now blight. And that is Batman Beyond. That is my pitch. I hope you enjoyed it. For Brian Reel, who gave me the question for the mailbag a while back, he asked me how I would cast this. And as I said, you know, I would probably make this an animated film to give some work to incredible voice actors. But if it was live action, I do have a cast First off, as Warren Riesco and Mary McGinnis, we have Piolo Pascual, as well as Allison Hannigan. Uh, Piolo Pascual's been a longtime Filipino actor. He's very good, and we need more Filipino actors on our our screens, whether they be big or small. Allison Hannigan. I just love Allison Hannigan. She's wonderful. Um, I was a big fan of her in pretty much everything she's been in, and I think she would be a very sweet mom. For the Royal Flush Gang... We have first, uh, as Derek Powers slash King, Nikolaj Coster waldau Uh, I think he's wonderful. I think he would bring a lot of gravitas to Derek Powers. And I think he would be just the right amount of smarm and cheese that you could give to this character. As his wife, Esperanza, or Queen... Sophia Vergara, I really enjoy her. I think she would knock this out of the park. Uh for Paxton Powers, Jack slash Blight, I have Callum Turner. Now, Callum Turner is mostly known for his work in the Fantastic Beasts films where he plays, oh, uh, what is his name? The main guy's brother. And there's something about him that I was like, I I really dig the idea of you being just this smarmy rich kid. Uh maybe it's because of who the character he plays. And then when it comes to the my three leads, the three main cast, um, I have as Melanie slash 10 Anya Taylor-Joy. I love her. She's incredible in everything she's ever been in. She would be amazing in this role. And I know that there are rumors that Marvel is courting her for Black Cat. I think she would do wonderful in this. And I think that as a thief, she should ride a playing card instead of trying to climb things. Now for the big two, Bruce Wayne slash Batman. I know the very easy thing is to be like Michael Keaton or actually cast Kevin Conroy. But for me, and you can tell me if this is weird or not, I cast Tom Selleck. Tom Selleck is at the right age to be an older Bruce Wayne. I think he's in his 70s, especially for this Bruce Wayne. And I don't know, man, I really like the idea of when he's, like, officially retired, him growing out the mustache like we see in Dark Knight Returns. Uh, I just like that, and I like the idea of this old, grumpy Tom Selleck being Batman. Plus, with the de-aging, like, look at pictures of a young Tom Selleck. That's Bruce Wayne. That's Batman. So that is my pick. And then for Terry McGinnis slash Batman, me! Me! Me, of course. It was me all along. Uh, of course, I'd love to play this, but setting aside my vanity, uh, I chose uh, Kian Talon. He is a young Filipino, uh, half-Filipino actor who is mostly known, I think, for his work on NCIS Hawaii. I think he's got the right amount of grit to him. He's got the look. I really dig his work. He hasn't done a lot, which I think this could be like a star-making performance for him. Uh, so I think that's that's what it would be in this film uh, for future casting because Brian did ask about that as well. Uh, characters who would pop up in future films uh, first: Max Gibson. I would cast a Storm Reed. Storm Reed's amazing. She's been amazing in everything we've seen her in. If the name doesn't sound familiar, she's in Euphoria. She is most recently in uh, the Suicide Squad as. Uh, Blood Sports daughter. I think she's great. I think she would kill it as Max Gibson. For Dana Tan, I would cast Lana Condor. I like Lana Condor. I think she would she's a dynamo as as uh, Dana is, and I think she'd crush this. And then finally, for Commissioner Barbara Gordon, I cast Julianne Moore. I love Julianne Moore. I think she would absolutely nail this and she is wonderful. But that does it. for my pitch for Batman Beyond. I put a lot of time into this. Thank you so much for listening. It has been a labor of love putting this together, but... For episode 200, we had to do it big, we had to make it special, and for me, that's what Batman Beyond is. It was my Batman show when I was hitting that age. Batman was exactly, Batman Beyond, was exactly what I needed at the time for my fiction as a kid at that age, and hopefully, I did Batman Beyond justice, though I'd be lying if i Didn't say that this was all just so I could shout, I am Batman. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Explained podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe on the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and especially subscriptions really does help me out and especially helps the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space. Basically raises our stock and gets us out and into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you want to give us a five-star rating review on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, whatever you want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write whatever you want, and I will be forced to read it if you give me that five stars. And you'll be able to join the likes of our Dirty Dozen, including Seafire ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, Alok and AZ, and sass I want to say a huge thank you to all these fine folks for their reviews and I cannot wait to hear yours also if you want to be part of our geek explained mailbag if you have a question for me you have a recommendation you have a message for the podcast maybe you just want to have me pitch stuff or maybe you just want a recommendation for something we haven't covered on the podcast yet You can send emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Just put mailbag in the subject header and I will read them here. Uh, We got some mail this week. I'm pretty excited about that for our 200th episode. Pretty, pretty excited. Uh, First off, I'm just going to give him a shout because I just got this text from him. Uh, AJ Kincaid, good friend, good brother of the podcast. He sent this to me in text form, so I'm just going to read this here. Uh he has been on multiple Geek Explained Extra series, has been on the main podcast as well. Go back and check out uh just recently, D De- or Spidey Sember, where we went through every single Spider-Man film alongside good brother Chris Carter, and he also was instrumental for our uh Into the Snyderverse, which was a series where we went through all of the DCEU EU in the lead up to Zack Snyder's Justice League. But AJ writes this. I wanted to say how proud of you I am for Geek explained. I still remember walking down forth with you and you telling me your idea. I knew you were going to do something amazing, and 200 episodes later, you have created a space where so many people can share joy. For that alone, you have done something amazing. Your work is seen and appreciated, my friend. Your works. You work so hard on this, and the results are incredible. Congratulations, man. So well-deserved. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you so much, AJ. Um, you're the man. I appreciate you. Also got a message from Adam Stringfellow. Uh, Adam writes to us on Instagram. Adam has been with us for a very long time. Adam has been around at least, I think, since the first year, and he has been a stalwart listener. Really great to hear from Adam. He writes in, hey there, Mr. Azana. Ooh, Mr. Azana. I like it. Name's Adam, longtime listener and fan of the podcast. Just wanted to say I love your work each week on the podcast, and I look to them every Wednesday and now Friday with Ultimate Spider Man. I listened to last week's episode and the top 10 episodes of The Batman. Loved that show growing up, BTW. And my two favorite episodes are Artifacts and a Matter of Family. Excellent taste, Adam. Looking forward to your pitch it for Batman Beyond later today. Hope you enjoyed it. Also, random question, but if you could put an age on the members of the Justice League, how old would you make them? Members of the league being Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Barry, and Wally, Green Lantern, Hal, John, Guy, Jessica, Simon, and Kyle, Hawkgirl, Martian Manhunter, Aquaman, Cyborg, Green Arrow, and Black Canary. That's a big list. I'm gonna I'm gonna be spitballing these. I'm just gonna let you know. And he said, "P.S. Don't ever forget the circles." God damn it, Adam. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. Thank you for that. Um, So the way that I would see it, if we're talking right now, Justice League is established. They're doing their thing. Superman, I would probably put, if we're talking, because he does have legacy characters in this, Superman right around um, late 30s, anywhere from 35 to 38. Batman, I would probably put in the same range, if not like a touch older, like I'd make him 40, because I think he's, he's at that point. He's had a cavalcade of Robins. Wonder Woman, depending on how you want to do like Amazonian aging, I'd probably put her around 30, 35, maybe. Flash, Barry, easily 35, easily 35 to 40, even, because Wally, I would put, if we're talking Wally as he is currently in the comics with Irie and Jay, I mean, Wally's gotta be 30 to 35 and Barry's just like a touch older than him so I'd say I would put I would put Wally conservatively if he if Irie and Jay are like eight years old let's say eight to ten. Let's say Wally and Linda got together and started having children around like 22, 23. Then I would say probably Wally is in the 33 to 35 range. Barry probably closer to like the 40 range around the same age as like he's a contemporary of Batman. I think people forget that. Green Lantern. How easily, easily 40. John around the same age, if not like a smidge older. Guy is perpetually 35 going on at 12 because of his emotional well being. Uh, Kyle, Kyle, I maybe because I grew up with Kyle and I love Kyle, I put him at 30 kyle is i'm gonna be 30 this year jesus uh kyle i like to think is my same age uh jessica i would put at probably like 25 and simon right around there as well because they came in around the same time hawk girl is tricky because depending on you know which justice league you subscribe to she could be anywhere from 25 to 35 but of course she's centuries old thanks to her reincarnation martian manhunter i mean how old are martians I, let's say Martians live to be like elves, right? So John is probably at least like 200 years old, let's say. Aquaman, Aquaman is easily 40. Aquaman is an older man. He is, like I've said before, he is a contemporary of Batman. Cyborg, I'd pretty, I'd pretty easily say 25, 25 to 30. He's a contemporary of Dick Grayson who was in that same age range. And then Green Arrow, easily around 40 black canary i'd probably say 35 so that is my spitballed off the cuff ages for all of these folks thanks for your question adam and i will never forgive you for bringing up those goddamn circles but we gotta move on gaius mccain As written into the podcast, guys, always good to hear from you. Uh, He writes, Hi, Eric. Hello. I just listened to your top 10 The Batman episodes list, and there were some pretty good ones. I love the season 2 finale and the clay face of tragedy. However, there was one that you missed that I have at number 1. My favorite episode of The Batman is The Laughing Bat. It's so good. What are your thoughts on the episode? I enjoy that episode. It was in the top 20. I think the Joker running around in a Batman costume is hilarious. And especially this version of the Joker. I really, really dig. So I do not fault you at all for having that episode in your, as your number one, it's a little high from number one for me, but I would say it's definitely a top 20 easily. Uh, he also writes also, I have been talking to a lot of people about Avengers age of Ultron and they said they hated it. I think the movie is literally perfect. It's my favorite Avengers movie. Can you explain why I'm the only one who likes this movie? Love your podcast and can't wait for Batman beyond. It's not, terrible. It's not the worst movie. I've watched it recently and there's actually a lot of good stuff in there. However, there are some glaring things that just aren't good about it. Um the weird Bruce and Natasha thing just doesn't it doesn't work for me. Um I didn't like that we kind of had a retread of the chitari where it's just All of our people just fighting waves of enemies again. Um, I think the pacing is a little off as well. But beyond that, there's some really good stuff in there. The Pietro-Wanda relationship I really dig. I'm hit or miss on uh, James Spader's Ultron. I think in some places he's really good. But I think they leaned a little bit too heavy on making him evil Tony Stark. When Tony Stark is right there. I do also really enjoy the opening sequence versus Hydra. And I like the after-party scene. I love the action. I don't really enjoy killing off Pietro, especially since he was one of the most interesting parts of the movie. But it's a heavily flawed movie. Not the worst of the MCU by far, though. So, guys, thanks as always for writing in. Always happy to hear from you. Let's see here. We also have an email from... Critical Rants. Our boy, Cole, thank you very much, Cole, for writing in. He writes, congrats on 200 episodes. That's no small feat. As a fellow fan of Beyond, I'm super excited to hear your pitch. Speaking of Batman Beyond, who is your favorite Batman Beyond villain? And if you could voice one Batman Beyond character, which Batman Beyond character would you like to voice if given the opportunity? Best, Cole. Cole, wonderful to hear from you. Check out his uh, his YouTube channel, Critical Rants. He's doing excellent stuff on there. He was also part of our Jimmy episode, go back in the archives and check out that Geek Explained Extra. Cole, Batman Beyond is near and dear to my heart, and I don't think I'm in the minority by saying that Shriek I just think is such an interesting and cool character. For me it's like Shriek Blight Shriek Blight Ink for the original uh Batman Beyond villains. We have, you know, the Return of the Joker. We have uh, Bane pop up, though his episode is also incredibly good. But and we also have Rachel al Ghoul. But for me, the three tops: Shriek, Blight, Ink. I love all three of them. I would have included all three of them in this if I could have. But again, if you want to hear more stuff for my pitches for Batman Beyond, let me know, and maybe I'll work them into the other two films. But. I think for me, Shriek is just such an interesting, he's got a great design. There's a reason they made an action figure of him, and it looks great. I really dig his whole deal, and I think he's super cool. If I had to voice Batman Beyond Character, I mean, come on. It's Terry McGinnis. I want to voice Terry. I've loved that character. If they ever do like an animated film or uh, a revival of the show, of course the original voice actor is incredible. He knows what he's doing. He is a master at his craft. But I'd love to give Terry a spin. So Terry would be my pick. If I had to go villains, though, I would definitely go the Shriek. I think I I don't know. I really like his character. He's he's my favorite Batman Beyond villain. Cole, thank you so much. Great to hear from you. And then finally. An email from our good brother, Malcolm Russell Nelson. Check him out every single Friday for the Geek Explained Book Club, where he, alongside myself and of course Jacob Brown, are going through every single issue of every single volume of Ultimate Spider Man. And keep your eyes peeled on Twitter because he might be launching another podcast himself pretty soon. So keep your eye on that. Malcolm writes Eric, me. he writes congratulations on episode 200 of the geek explained podcast such an occasion deserves to be celebrated and in kind here are 200 questions for you to answer (laughs) just kidding he writes just kidding that would be terrible here's a few for you what is your favorite moment from the podcast so far oh god um there are so many there are genuinely so many incredible moments from this podcast anytime that I get to have a guest on is automatically my favorite moment getting to work with people who I've admired in the community in the comic book fandom um, getting to work with people who I looked up to when it comes to the horrible term content creation I have adored getting to meet so many people getting to just expound on my love for comic books and other geek-related media. Uh, Favorite moment specifically? It's tough. It's tough because I love getting to interact with people. I love hearing that people love the podcast, that it's, you know, I've gotten messages from people saying it's the best part of their week, and that really touches me. So each one of those is a moment that I would have to have to go on um when it comes to like the podcast itself like just the podcast i, t- I think the the geeks Explain book club has been incredible every single moment that i get to spend with uh with malcolm with jacob has been wonderful season one was great season two is roaring all over the place. we got circles for days. Uh, I love it. I love getting to interact anytime I have a guest on this podcast where you don't have to hear just me, just my voice, which is hilarious because of what this episode is, um, is a big time moment for me. Uh, he also asks, what would you say has been the biggest thing the podcast has given to you personally? Woof. How has it changed you or how has it changed how you consume your geek media or enjoyment of geek media? Um, I think one of the biggest ways is in how I collect comics. Before I launched the co- the podcast, I was picking up maybe five comics a week, and it has exploded, and my wallet has not been happy with me to double digits each week. And I think just trying to keep up with everything because you know you got to be on top of it with the podcast and with telling people you know hey this is what's going on. I have been plugged in to a lot of. Geek News to make sure I'm able to cover it on the podcast, Um, going through solicits, going through uh, previews. I didn't really used to do that before the podcast, and it gives me kind of a greater appreciation of the marketing side of comic books. And being able to look at things differently when it comes to comic books and how I analyze them. Because when I started the Geek'splain Spotlight series, I was able to just like gush about comics, but also being able to talk about what they mean to me personally gives me a deeper appreciation for them. And the podcast, I will say, has changed me sometimes for the worse, but definitely for the better as well. And then finally, he asks, "What are no more than three ca- <laughs> Malcolm, he asks, "What are no more than three castings for comic book characters in live action that you would change for the better?" And who would you switch them with? I know he wants me to say Dr. Strange. Because he hates, hates, hates Benedict Cumberbatch's Dr. Strange. Uh, but I honestly really like... I really like him. I really like him, personally. Let's see. Three comic book castings that I would personally change. Hmm. Um. Let's see here. I... Uh, you know... Here's the thing. Ezra Miller. Ezra Miller's been in the news. I don't feel like I need to give him a reason why he's in the news because it's well-documented at this point. I think Ezra Miller was not a good casting for The Flash. Uh, Personally, I mean, all DCEU's X-Snyder bullshit aside, I think there could have been different ones. I I think, honestly, you could have just pulled... Grant Gustin, I think he's doing some of the best work of his entire career on The Flash, certain seasons notwithstanding, but he would have fit in really, really well. Um, Let's see, who else, who else, who else, who else? These are tough uh, for the, let's see, for an MCU one, I was kind of surprised... At the casting of Oscar Isaac as Moon Knight. Moon Knight's popular. He's not exactly the person I would have picked. Though I think he's doing a great job. At least if we go by the first episode. I would have slotted in... Oh, what's his name? The guy from Upgrade. The not Tom Hardy guy. He was in Homecoming. Let me look this up real quick. Uh, Logan Marshall Green is the actor who i think would have done a great job as moon knight not that again i think it's too early to say whether oscar isaac has succeeded as mark specter or not but i think logan marshall green could have used the bump a little bit more personally just me so that's two and then for the third one hmm hmm There is a world in which I don't know if I want to say this one because I know people are gonna just rake me over the coals. Ah, um, uh, that's tough. You know what? I'm just gonna I'm just gonna go with one that hasn't happened yet. But the Green Lantern Corps series is coming. Oh no! But what did, what did he say specifically? He says. No no no, he just said any comic book live action casting. Okay, so Green Lantern Corps is a show that is coming, right? And we have some characters already cast for this. Specifically, let me pull him up. Uh Finn Wittrock is going to play Guy Gardner. Again, I haven't seen it. I don't know what I would uh what he's going to end up being. But I still think Alan Richson, who plays just a wonderful asshole on Titans as Hawk, would have been a wonderful Guy Gardner. So those are my three castings. Maybe they're bullshit, maybe not, but that's what you get when it's off the top of my head. But Malcolm writes, thanks for everything and being you, brother, Malcolm. Malcolm, I love you, man. Malcolm has been with me for my comic book fandom since near, you know, near the beginning of my appreciation of comic books. And he has been with me in one form or another every step of the way. Again, check him out. He's got a new podcast in the works and he is here every single Friday for the Geek Explained Book Club. But that wraps the Geek Explained mailbag. Once again, if you want to send me an email, if you have a message, a question for the podcast, uh, send them to geeksplained at gmail.com. Put mailbag in the subject header and I'll read them on here. I also, if you want to DM me, if you have something, if emails are too harrowing, (laughs) feel free to do that as well. And then finally, if you want to keep up to date with the podcast, uh, participate in polls that decide future episodes, keep up with any kind of updates that I put on the podcast as well. Uh, if you want to just shoot the shit with me on the latest geeky news, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Pod. That's at P O D. And every single Friday, I already mentioned it. Explained Book Club, we're going through Ultimate Spider-Man this week. We're going to be checking out ep- our volume 13, entitled Hobgoblin, with Malcolm Russell Nelson and Jacob Brown, Be There or Be Square, not a circle. And that brings us to an announcement for the podcast. This is the end of volume four, episode 200, a big milestone for the podcast, and we are going on break for a little while. April is going to be without the Geek Explained podcast in its main podcast form. Um, but the reason why this is, is I have been going at this pretty consistently for four years at this point, 200 episodes, and I am feeling a little burned out. I have been thinking about this for a few months. And there have been things in my life and stuff with the podcast that I, if I'm being honest, I haven't been super happy with. And I, you know, after four years, when you put your heart and soul into something, and it doesn't always love you back, it's, uh, it's, it's discouraging. But i love this podcast i love getting to interact with everyone and that's the thing with burnout right you get so you know you get neck deep into something you love and all of a sudden you start to realize that you're drowning and i need this for my mental health i need this for my emotional well-being i just need a break the plan is right now to come back in may i want to just take april off though every single friday we'll still be doing the book club so make sure you tune in for that every single friday that will not stop i love talking comics with malcolm and with jacob but the main podcast on wednesday is is going to go on hiatus after this episode again the plan is to come back in may though we'll see what happens um I want to thank any everyone who has been with me on this ride. Uh, this isn't a decision that I'm making lightly. This has been a huge part of my life for four years. And I am incredibly grateful and incredibly thankful for everyone who has jumped on to the podcast, who has been listening every single week, whether you started from the beginning or you jumped on along the way. You have no idea, genuinely. I know the popular thing and the, you know cliche thing for everyone is like, oh, I love my listeners. I love my fans. But genuinely, I love you guys. I would not be doing this without you guys. And I hope that when the podcast comes back that we will just pick up right where we left off. But for me, for my mental health, I need a break. And I am finally going to take a month long break. From this show, I haven't taken more than two weeks off of the podcast, and even then, I've been putting out extras, I've been putting out content, and it's exhausting. And I think everyone who does content creation in any shape or form knows that. So I wanted to be transparent with you, I wanted to be completely open and honest because you don't deserve anything less. The podcast, I still love and adore, I just need some time away from it. I need some time away from putting something out every single week and having to stress about it because that's kind of what it's been for a little while now. I love doing this podcast, but it is kind of stressful doing this alongside having a day job and pursuing my career in voice acting and having a social life and spending time with my partner. So again, this isn't the end. This is just, you know, a break, a pause for now, a hiatus, and I will hopefully come back on the main podcast bigger, stronger, faster, all of that stuff, and I, again, want to thank you. 200 episodes I couldn't have even dreamed of when I first started this podcast, and it is because of all of you that I've been able to make this happen, that I've been able to do 200 episodes, and it means the world that you are on this ride with me, so again, Stick with us. Uh, explained Book Club every single Friday. We'll be doing Ultimate Spider-Man. That is not stopping. But the main podcast will be going on hiatus for a little while now. And I think that's it. 200 episodes. I'm incredibly grateful, incredibly thankful. You have changed my life for better. And I can't wait to see where the podcast goes next. So without further ado, tune in at some point. At some point in the very near future, fingers crossed, tentatively, May, what is that? First week of May, let's say, let's make a date of it. May 4th. Be there. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explained, this is Eric Kazana, a very grateful, a very humbled, and a very thankful Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. It means the world to me. 200 episodes is just incredible. And I have each and every one of you who listens to the podcast to thank. Thank you so much for listening. Stay safe. I love you all. And we will see you next time. (laughs)